everyone that's a new start hi everyone uh welcome <laughs> to episode 22 of chin music a podcast read by fangraphs i'm kevin goldstein i'm in dekalb illinois and joining me in the co-host here this week we go back to new york and uh repeating his role as the co-host from his luxurious accommodations in brooklyn it's jay jaffe jay how are you hey i'm pretty good kevin good to be here are you pretty good yeah, I am. I I'll am. I, I, got, I got a good night's sleep after uh, uh, two fairly compressed nights of sleep uh, due to the all-star festivities. And, uh, um, you know, so I'll, I'll take it. We're, we're, we're at the mercy of uh, the kid being in summer camp. So we're getting up uh, at school time early. And uh, so that's that's a little rough when you've got these these late night games and, and, and doing late night work. What is early? 730. That's too early. That's too early. Um we're going to have like a, a, a quote-unquote normal episode here and talk about things going on in baseball. Obviously, much of it will be revolved around what uh, All-Star Week. Um, we'll talk about what to expect in the second half. Uh, our special guest, we can line up our special guest having some technical issues, uh, but our special guest uh, is our listener of the week and is the man who is getting his doctorate in graffiti. Uh, and then we'll have a, you know, the usual third segment, go through your emails, talk about a moment of culture and things like that. Um, for those of you wondering about the other big story of the week, which was the draft, uh, wait about 24 hours. You'll get a special episode with just me and Eric rambling. We're going to go through each team's draft. Um, so you're getting two episodes this week. So that can be a good thing. Uh, Jay, you uh, covered the home run derby on a level I can only call psychotic. Um, <laughs> you did a preview and then you actually broke down the derby in a piece that I'm estimating at 17,000 words. Um, (laughs) Do you, do you really like the home run derby this much? You know, I, I actually, I do. Um, I think that the, that the change in format to the timed rounds um, combined with the uh, availability of stat cast data, um, you know, those two things have basically have coincided, although they've, they've sort of tweaked, they've tweaked the, 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 the timing of the rounds and, and things like that has has made this I think more you know a more viewer friendly thing than the All Star Game itself. It's it, to me, you know, it's it's where I get to geek out, um, and uh, um, you know, it's also one of those things where like you know certain other aspects of my work I've noticed a uh, a, a gap in coverage and just decided hey I can I can find you know, something that's going to occupy, you know, a couple of days every summer and, and uh, uh, with relatively little competition. Um, and, you know, there's so, every, you know, so many people are at the all-star game. I'm not there. This is actually easier to cover at home. No uh, doubt. I'm, I'm less concerned with, you know, who's saying what and gathering, you know, quotes and, and, and things like that than, than kind of nerding out. And, you know, particularly with the, uh, the, the stat cast broadcast, um, 
you know, in, a, in effect for this year with uh, uh, my friend Mike Petriello and, and uh, Jason Benetti and Jessica Mendoza, both of whom I, I got to do uh, some KBO stuff with last year. You know, it's just, it was a really pleasurable experience to, to listen to them and, and uh, you know, and, and nerd out, basically. You know, I'm, I think, you know, especially Coors Field, come on. You know, we've, this is, this is not a drill. We've been waiting for Coors Field Home Run Derby since, 19, <laughs> since 1998 to have Statcast data. It's just it's it's a it's kind of a controlled experiment basically, and and so in that aspect, the nerd in me was 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 really enjoying it. And I mean, there was a lot of talk beforehand about like, oh, Shohei Otani's the guy to beat, or or oh, sure. Joey Joey Gallo's the guy to beat, or or whatever. And you know, with eight competitors, and like, I mean, look, all these dudes got big pop, right? It's not. We're not, we, we, you know, we did not invite Nick Badrigal and Luis Arez there. We, you know, we invited guys (laughs) with pop, Um, you know, and even, you know, Trevor Story at a ball 518 feet. Like, is anybody really, you know, you have eight eight guys. So, you know, if you, if it's an even odds thing, it's 12, it's 12.5% per guy. Right. Right. Does, I mean, in in reality, does anyone have more than a 20% chance of winning? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I looked at the metrics. uh, I gathered some metrics beforehand. Um, Shohei Otani is clearly, you know, like a head and shoulders above everybody in just about every, all the meaningful categories that, that I looked at with, with maybe one exception, um, big gap in barrel rate, which, which our colleague Devin Fink found in 2019, uh, was the, uh, the, had the best correlation, uh, with, with, um, with winning the Derby in terms of the recent format, um. And so I, you know, I could convince myself that yeah, it's Otani, and if it's not Otani, it's probably Joey Gallo because he's the distance king, uh, the one area that that, that Otani doesn't uh, have him beat on like a multi-year basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and 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 going through it, I was like, you know, there. He, I said about Trey Mancini, there's no Statcast metric here. There are no met, there are no metrics here that tell you uh, that he's got a strong chance of winning. Um, you know, it was like seventh or eighth in most of the categories, but. Um, you know, I think what the, the, the missing variable there is the quality of the pitching, um, which no question. Yeah. None of us had any idea, uh, you know, what to expect there. And that I think was, was as much as the difference maker as anything else. Um, because, you know, despite the fact that you had a huge contrast between the, uh, the, you know, compact quick swings of Mancini and the, uh, just you know, monster swings of Pete Alonso. Um, uh, you know, those those two guys were the best because their pitchers were just spot on. Um, whereas you had Kevin Long <laughs> uh, kind of all over the place for Juan Soto and some of these other guys. Uh, you know, I, I think Shohei Otani's guy was maybe struggling to put it uh, uh, right where he wanted because he kept kind of lining it uh, yeah. uh, instead of elevating it. So, you know, I don't want to make excuses for any of the players themselves. They're, you know, this is, they may, they have the choice of, of, of who to use, and I'm sure they practice at some point. But, you know, the, the, the other separator, the fact that Alonzo had done this before, he was the only returning competitor, um, we probably should have uh, maybe thought a little bit harder about him. For what it's worth, the Vegas odds had him third behind Otani and, and Gallo, um, but still with kind of an outsider shot. Um and uh, but he just he was on another planet. I mean, he just he was so focused and knew what to do, whereas these other the other ones were were you know trying to figure it out. Um, they they all seemed to take like the first thirty seconds to get uh, to get the shit together, 
Um, you know, they'd maybe hit one or two out in the first 30 seconds. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of paddling upstream there. Whereas Alonzo would have like seven in the first 30 seconds. You're like, yeah, good night. <laughs> yeah. Um, because he was, he was just, he was, you know, um, he was on another planet. It's, it's funny. I, funny how you talk about how important the pitching is. And I, I think you're right. And, um, you know, when I worked for the Astros, we had a guy at our complex in the Dominican Republic who, who was a coach, but if you were, you know, if there was a workout happening there, he was going to throw the BP every time mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. I mean, once we, I mean, you know, the, the team had track man at the complex um, and, and we once like turned the track man on just to see what he looked. And it was just like, it looked like one circle. Like it looked like he yeah. threw just one because they were just dead. And he could literally, it was just unbelievable. Like if you go to a game and you watch BP, um, you'll see like, you know, two or three guys throw BP because it's tiring. Um, right. You know, and he could do it for hours and throw it down to the point where, like, they would fly him from the Dominican Republic to Florida for draft workouts because that's <laughs> who you want. I, it's right. the, literally the best BP thrower. Like, if if anyone, if if you if you if I was in the home run derby, I would call this guy and fly him in. Like, it was, it's the right. best BP thrower I ever seen, and he could do it forever. We called him La Machina, and um, like it was unbelievable. And I, I think it's really important to be able to do that and put you know pitches in guys' sweet spots and. and you know, some some images went around about you know what Dave Jouse was doing, and um, that stuff matters. Like to give yeah. them a, a, a something that they really that they need in the right spot. Yeah, it's like you know, it's it's getting back to my analogy. It's a controlled experiment, and you know, if you want, if you can hold the pitching constant, uh, you know, when I, you know, for your example, with you know, in terms of a pre-draft workout, uh, that's a big deal. You know, because you're trying to put these guys on on as even a footing as you can, and you've got. You know enough variables that you have to uh, uh, account for. Um, you know when you're evaluating talent that that having the same guy throw them all BP has to be yeah you know, a, a bit of a bonus if he's if if he's that good. Are there any other because like they have you know the NBA has has you know the three point shot thing and the dunks and the NHL has has like a skills competition of some sort. Um, and I was like, is there any, I thought about like all the other things you could do and all, everything I thought of was like, well, dudes are going to get hurt. Like, you know, I thought about like, you know, I just, how hard can you throw? You know, that's a bad yeah. idea. That's a or really sprinting. bad idea. Sprinting, you know, yeah. Best sprinting, bad idea. Even like yeah. big outfield throws, bad idea. Then I was like thinking about some sort of infield thing you could do where you set like a shortstop up and, you know, you start hitting balls to his right, you know, and he has got to make the play and they go 10 feet and 15 and 20 and see who can keep up. I'm like all these things are going to get people hurt. Like, do you, <laughs> are, are there any other kind of skills competition like things baseball could do? You know, I mean, I, I suppose you could do a stat cast thing where instead of speed, you're looking at movement. Um, that could be sort of interesting if you might like, be too like, esoteric for fans. It's probably, it's probably, yeah, I don't think it's going to make for the same, you know, it's not, it's definitely not going to have the same, you know, visceral hook that hitting the longest home runs or hitting the most home runs will, because, you know, that's, uh, that's, you know, the signature of the sport in some ways, um, at least from a, you know, not from a gawking standpoint, you've, we've, we've, we've got, you know, a, a long history of, 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 of the home run derby, you know, as, you know, as an all-star uh, week event, it goes back to the, what, late, you know, the mid eighties, um, and before yeah. that, you had this, the the nineteen six the early sixties ones at Wrigley Field that got uh, endlessly recirculated on. What was uh, that ESPN Classic? Was that show called Home Run Derby? What was that? Show? I think it was actually called Home Run Derby. There, yeah, I, I'm not sure. The there may have been a modifier in there, but you know they 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 do these off season 
uh, one-on-ones with like you know guys that are now in the Hall of Fame. Like oh, they're Willie great. Mays. They're amazing. Yeah, Willie Mays, Harmon Killebrew, Mickey Mantle. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, it's they all. I think uh, um, they're probably still circulating on YouTube. For all I know, I saw a bunch. They gotta of them. be. Yeah, um, I don't. My 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 cable provider doesn't carry ESPN Classic anymore, so um, so I'm without. I don't think they show them anymore on on, on the classic. Um, with all of this, you know, um, leading into the All Star Game, can I can I make a confession to you, Jay? You didn't watch. I didn't watch the All Star Game. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think in, for for somebody like you who you know who. Uh, uh, not only generally deals with the you know the the you know minor league stuff the prospect stuff but also this year had the ridiculous pile up of the futures game and the and the first round of the draft on the same day i think you're totally forgiven um because that's that's just maximum saturation there and i can only imagine what uh, um you know given all the prep that you and and uh, uh eric did um i can only imagine just how you know how how gassed you must have been after that so I you I you watched it. Were you were you? It, I mean, I certainly caught up with it and watched the highlights and yeah, read the stories and stuff. Like, right. it didn't seem like an overly entertaining game. Yeah, I was I I was I was only intermittently uh, engaged, and you know, part of that's just workflow stuff. I mean, when I'm I'm watching the derby and writing about the derby, I'm you know my that the thing has my full attention because I'm navigating both the both the broadcast you know, and my own work, whereas. Uh, when the All-Star Game was on, I was writing about Joey Gallo for a piece that ran on Wednesday. Right. Um, that was sort of, you know, win or lose, whatever, whatever, however he did in the Derby. The fact that he'd made the All-Star team after last year's uh, 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 difficult season, you know, had, had turned him into, you know, a topic of interest for me. And so I was writing about that and glancing back at the game. And, you know, I, 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 I focused on Otani's inning. Um, certainly saw, you know, Vlad's home run and the, and the replays of that. Um, and there, you know, there were a few minor things that caught my eye, but, it, but it wasn't, I couldn't sustain it. Uh, also, you know, having, having a, a kid running around, uh, after, after bedtime <laughs> certainly, you know, certainly contributes to that. Emma had, had, uh, uh, had, had handled, uh, Robin during the Derby, which included her coming out of bed and watching, I think the final round, which, you know, here on East Coast time, that's past eleven o'clock. But Uh-oh. you know, our kid is a freaking pain in the ass when it comes to bedtime. <laughs> but, you know, but you know, I'm, it's like when I'm, she shows, I'm when still she, a pain in the ass when it comes yeah, to bedtime. When she, worry, she you know. when she shows it, you know, she's 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 almost five. When she shows interest in baseball, we we generally you know we generally indulge her. I've you know I've called her out of bed to come watch an Aaron Judge at bat. Aaron Judge is her favorite player, mm-hmm. hands down. Um, you know, Emma was in, was in our home office, which is next to the, next to her bedroom, uh, while I was in the living room watching the TV. So, you know, she wandered in and it was Emma there instead of me, but, you know, she's she got to see, the, got to see, uh, uh, some of the derby and, and, and get some of the explainers and the home run is like, you know, the one element of baseball she can really understand, you know, ball goes over the fence, hit a long yeah, way, it's easy. you know, so um, the rest the other nuances, you know, are still beyond her. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I mean, one of the stories in this year's All Star Game was all the players who decided not to play. Um, yeah, and and you know, do you? I know that there was you know both the both Major League Baseball and the union have done some some quote unquote work over the last couple of years to try to get or, or you know get players to to play when they're selected. Um, we had a better rate of participation over the last couple of years. This year, it kind of seemed to just absolutely fall apart. Um, 
Is there anything that can be done about that, or is that just that's just how uh, it is? I, and, and I'm fine. Like, if you want to, yeah. like, say, like, hey, I don't, I, 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 I it's bothering part- me, and I got important games coming up at the end of the week. Like, you know, I, I, I get it. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you. I think the. The only ones that I raised my eyebrows about were the two Astros. Sure. Uh, no, absolutely. Korea and Altuve, because it, you know, the optics of it are bad. Um, it looks like they want to, you know, further avoid any... Uh, uh, the wrath. Yeah, you know, the, the, the wrath and, the, you know, the individual conversations that, that might happen because they haven't really had to face the music and, in in, in, you know, face their peers in that way, uh, you know, since, since the scandal broke. But, you know, we're talking about Coors Field here. We're talking about we know that the level of exertion uh, there takes a greater toll for recovery times. It's really tough for me to get worked up about Jacob deGrom skipping it. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that guy's, you know, all those injured starts. I mean, I think the Mets should have should have put him on the IL for 10, you know, for 10, uh, 10 days at least anyway. Um, and, you know, and, and, and cooled him off. And, and I think that um, I have... You know, there's there's plenty of other guys that that, that I can you know I'm willing to give a pass to uh, when it comes to uh, them skipping out. It's it's a it's a bit of a bummer. But what I want most about out of the All Star Game is guys who are glad to be there. Yeah. And you know, and if a few more fringe guys get to get on the roster because somebody ducked out, hey, so what? You know, it's the the Derby. Uh, again, getting back to the Derby, we never get anything close to our full wish list. I mean, you know, our, we wouldn't have enough spots if we got our full wish list because you'd have Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton and Bryce Harper and Mike right. Trout. Um, you know, and then you would maybe don't have room for the Trey Mancini uh, comeback story or, or you know, or, or whatever. And, and uh, uh, so I think it's good that we get a bit of a, you know, a bit of turnover from year to year. This was, you know, this wasn't Jacob DeGrom's year to start the All-Star game, I guess, by his own decision. And, and you know, I hope he gets uh, another chance to earn that. But uh, um, if that's, if, if that part of his resume, you know, goes unfulfilled, then, you know, nobody should weep for him. But, but I, it's an understandable and perfectly defensible decision. Yeah, and it was just strange because I actually did have the introductions on as we were getting dinner ready, and and all of a sudden out come you know the National League starters, and like there's two pirates there, you right? Know, there's Brian Reynolds and Adam Frazier running. Out. I'm like, oh, good for them. Yeah, and there's two Reds, right? There's there's yeah. there's uh, uh, yeah, Winker and Castellanos. Yeah, Winker and Castellanos. So, yeah, it's it's you know maybe that explains why the National League lost again. <laughs> 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 we um, talked about you know, we talked. I talked about this with 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 Dan Zimborski yesterday on the uh, Fangraphs Audio Podcast, which is also uh, dropping uh, today too. Or, um, so obviously with the All Star Break, we lead into the second half and just kind of want to walk through and get you know some of your thoughts on on where we go from here. I'm going to go in standings order. I have a question for you that's very kind of this has nothing to do with the second half. That's to do with standings pages, which is every standings page goes in the same order. And I've never understood how, where this order started because it's not alphabetical and geographically it's east to west. Do you do you have any idea what the what east? Why, and, I, wait, I, it always goes AL East, AL Central, AL West. Yeah, I, 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 it's one of those customs that I, I don't think I've ever questioned. I remember when I was growing up reading the Salt Lake Tribune uh, for my box scores and my, um, and, and, and my uh, um, standings. It was always. NL was the far left column and AL was the mm. second was the second column over. Um, you know, now we've got it's 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 more vertically oriented because you know we've got this this the scroll 
uh, the on-screen scroll. But you're right; it is. Uh, um, it, it does always seem that way. Although, hang on, I want I want to check one thing here. The one, <laughs> okay, the uh, this is important. This is important actually. The MLB at bat app on the iPhone, at the very least, has National League first, and it goes National League West, East, Central, American League East, Central, West. I don't know what the what what the hell. This makes sense. I'm opening the app on my phone because I'm not buying this. I think you've done some sort of. Do you have a, is your favorite team there? And yes, right you're, you're right. I, yes, yes. In fact, okay. that 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 is it because I've got I've got the Dodgers uh, as the yeah. default team here. So okay, um, I have no favorite team on my app, and it, it is it is as we've talked about before. It's um, AL, yeah, AL East Central West. Okay. Exactly. Um, okay. So uh, let's let's just kind of run through each division. We go. We'll start with the American League East because that's what the standings page start with. Um, <laughs> You know, Boston, uh, I don't know, I hate to call them a surprise after 90-something games, but I don't, I don't think people thought Boston would be in first place. Uh, but they are. Um, they have a game-and-a-half lead on Tampa Bay. Uh, Toronto and the Yankees are both still kind of hanging around at eight games out, but just four-and-a-half out of the wild card. Um, let's start with Boston. You know, obviously they called up a, a prospect for the second half and in, in Jaron Duran. Um, and, you know, can Boston hold on here? Well, I think they could certainly hold on to a, a playoff spot. Whether they're going to hold on to the division, you know, I, I'm I'm still maybe a little bit skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look at what they're do- you look at what they're doing, and and they're getting you know they've got above average production at at, at most positions, with the exception of catching and, and first base. Um, the rotation is really, I think, where where you know I'm 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 questioning you know whether they can pull this off. Um, you know, Nathan Navaldi, Nick Pavetta, and and Martin Perez have been their best starters. Garrett Richards and, and, and Eduardo uh, Rodriguez have been subpar. At some point, they're going to get Chris Sale back. You figure they're probably going to be in the market for for some help there too, because um, you know they're they're not a team that's been swapping guys in and out of the rotation the way some have. All their starters. I'm looking at their page right now. I have either 18 or 17 starts. Um, so there's going to be a fatigue factor there. Um, they, they've been very, you know, consistent in, in taking the ball and in eating innings, but I, you know, there's, there's an element of luck to that, uh, mm-hmm. in the health department. And, you know, based on everything we know about the jump from 60 to 162, um, the, you know, there's, there's has to be a concern that the bill's going to come due. They're going to need more depth. And, you know, the Yankees have been the subject of considerable angst throughout yeah. the year. Um, and you know, I know you do a, a, a partial plan there and, and follow the Yankees closely. Um, at, every time you think they're going to get going, they start losing again. Um, they finished the, 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 you know, it looked like they were going to finish the break with a, a three game sweep in Houston. And then they collapsed in the ninth <laughs> on, on <laughs> yeah. Sunday. Um, you know, when they find themselves, they were as low, I believe they got all the way down to, to, to exactly 500, right? And, um, you know, they're three games over right now. Yeah, I, I think they were – let me look. I think they were one game one Yeah, game one game over. over. Yeah. And like, no, no, you no, they were, no, you're right. They were, they were 41 and 41. Um, that okay. was in, the, in, the, in, a, in a doubleheader against the Mets, uh, and then they won the second one to, to, to get back up. So the sun has not set on them right. uh, as, 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 a, as a 500 team. But they were, they were 500 for about three hours. Yeah, they're 500-ish. Um, and, you know, it's been – you know, it's it's – you know, Yankees Twitter is very angry, and um, you know, and you get your press conferences with Aaron Boone saying, "Yeah, this isn't acceptable. We got to be better." Right. And, and then they seem to get better, and then they don't. Like, is this just what we're going to ride the rest of the year with them? 
getting hot and saying here comes the Yankees and then getting cold and saying this is unacceptable and yeah. then getting hot or I mean do they have is there any reason for optimism with this team and again they're four and a half out of the wild card they're, they're yeah, perfectly I, reasonable I, I, chance I'm to not burying the them yet okay. I'm not burying them yet I actually that was on a podcast a gambling related pod, uh, uh, radio spot and I think I think they're still a sleeper because I just the odds that all these guys they've got they've basically gotten replacement level production out of first base left field and center field and you know they've got some quality guys there Luke I, like I don't expect Luke Voigt to keep struggling yeah um, you know he's shown signs of life there he was digging himself out of an early season hole where he was it was kind of bracketed by two stints on the IL um you know they've they've got so many guys underperforming Glaber Torres has, has been terrible too I, I just there's no real earthly reason why Glaber Torres should be struggling the way he is likewise DJ LeMahieu I mean these guys were you know were 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 great for them in 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 you know in uh, 2019 Torres had a bad 2020 um I I just it, it, to me it defies belief that they're going to be this bad all year long right um you know, and I think the pitching. I, you know, I've been critical of their of of their off season pitching plan. I thought that they needed another mid you know mid rotation innings guy like you know retaining Masahiro Tanaka made perfect sense. Except they decided to go cheap, um, and they put a lot of you know they went so conservatively with the lineup and so high risk with the starting pitching. Um, Corey Kluber, Domingo Herman. Jamison Tyone, one inning between those, and Luis Severino, one inning between those four guys last year. And, you know, other than other than Kluber, who's been pretty good and took a while to get pretty good. Yeah. You know, they got, they've gotten subpar Tyone. Um, Herman's been about average, I guess. Um, certainly, I think, has has been better in terms of eating innings than, than they could have hoped for. Um, Severino had a setback. And, you know, they they've... They've been sparing with their usage of, of Davy Garcia, who, who got the snot knocked out of him in, in, in one of his starts, but you know hasn't been uh, hasn't been a factor after really looking good last year as a rookie. Um, I don't know what the fuck they do there. Um, you know, it's it's, <laughs> it's they need to, they, they need a serious talent infusion uh, at the break, and they need a lot of guys to turn around. But I just, I still think that you know between what they have and and what they could have the depth of their resources is such that there'll be factors in the second half. I don't think they're going to come. I don't think they're going to erase eight games uh, to take over the division lead, but I do think there'll be a wild card team. Um, and that's, you know, that's not, that's not a great place to be. Um, no, you, but, you've cut your world series chances in half. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but you know, it's, it's still, I think, um, you know, it, it it's still within them. Uh, they got a lot of traffic to fight through, though, and and they're gonna they, they can't afford to have too many more things go wrong. And then always hanging around, being way better than I've ever expected them to be is the race. Um, yep. You know, and and I, I don't know. I mean, I should I should give up trying to explain it. They're they're just good at what they do. Yeah, yeah. It's they're so it's it's hard to look at them and and see and and and. Be particularly impressed on an individual level because it's not like they have, you know, a strong MVP candidate or a strong Cy Young candidate, um, especially this year. You know, we're we're mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're starting pitching. Their best starting pitcher is is, is probably down for the year in Glasnow. Um, you know, there's everybody else there is kind of scuffling along. 
Uh, I keep kind of waiting for it to kind of collapse, and and but I've yeah. I, but this is not the first year where I've kind of started waiting for it to collapse, and it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just a, it's it's a situation where the the whole the whole always seems to be greater than the sum of its parts because they do you know a lot of uh, uh, you know smart uh, resources management. They don't have many holes in their lineup. I don't, I, right. I think when you look at like you know going going over to you know their 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 team batting stats, and you see all those. Uh, uh, 100, 100 plus OPS plus or WRC plus, depending on where you're looking. It's it's just it's easy to see that there's just not a lot of easy outs in that lineup. So you know, give them the, give them that. But uh, um, should they be 16 games above 500? It it doesn't it doesn't strike me. At it doesn't first seem class, right. But yet, but it never does. Second, it never does. It never does. And yet they have the best run differential in the division by by about 50 percent. Relative to you know to the oh actually the Blue Jays have a better one than the Red Sox I take that back but um, yeah the best run run differential in the division by by thirteen runs um, and yeah that's it's it's still you know something of a mystery. Um, speaking of run differential, the American League Central, um, the White Sox are the only positive run differential team, and not only are they positive, they are at plus one seventeen, which is the second highest number in the league. Um, they continue to play well. Uh, Cleveland has scuffled. Their lead is now eight games. The Royals had that really adorable little run early in the year, and now we're in last place. Um, you know, Minnesota has never really gotten going like people expected. Uh, Detroit's been a pleasant surprise, um, but this one's over, right? Yeah, okay. I, I think so. I mean, there's you know the the thing about the White Sox is is for all the injuries they've had, they're getting healthier. They've got. Um, Eloy's on a on a rehab assignment. Um, you know they they anticipate getting uh, Luis Robert back. Um, Yasmani Grandal is down, but they you know they think he'll be back before the end of the season, even though he did have to undergo a surgical procedure. Um, you figure they're going to patch second base at the deadline. We've yeah. been hearing Adam Frazier and, and Eduardo Escobar's those names for for like two months now. Um, the starting pitching is, is is pretty solid, although you know Dallas Keuchel's kind of underperformed. But you figure, um, you know they're gonna they're gonna probably like every other contender they'll they'll go out they'll get something, um, you know to to help with their depth and 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 maybe shuffle some stuff around. Um, it's a you know it's by far the strongest team in the division and 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 perhaps the strongest team in the in the AL right now. Do we have to, despite the fact that he's a problematic human, give Tony LaRusso some credit? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think we all thought that it was possible this could blow up. It has not. Um, you know, he has embarrassed himself in a couple ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any better of him. I, there was nothing that was going to change my opinion of, of Tony Tony LaRusso, the man or the manager. We know he's a great manager. He's in the he's in the freaking Hall of Fame. Um, we know he's somebody who makes questionable decisions. We know he's somebody who makes, you know, does a lot of things that are, that are, that just make us roll our eyes because they're, you know, throwbacks to, to a bygone era in, in, in that we've kind of moved beyond like the, you know, some of the, um, stuff about the proper way to baseball. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 there's nothing that was going to change my mind about it, but you know, here he is and, and here the white Sox are and, and, mm-hmm. You know, we have to deal with it. So, you know, respect for the fact that, that this has not uh, this, this has not blown up, even though there are a couple of times when it seemed like it could, especially when they when they lost uh, uh, Eloy Jimenez and Luis Robert earlier in the year. I think it probably would have been easy for that team to start feeling, feeling sorry for itself. And, 
you know, instead of uh, just kind of, you know, gritting their teeth and next man upping it through, uh, you know, a, t- a tough time of year. Um, and the West, it felt like a dogfight for a while between Houston and Oakland over the last couple of weeks. Houston um, created a little bit of space. They go into the second half, three and a half games up on Oakland. Um, they have the best offense in baseball, despite kind of just sacrificing the catcher position for defense. Um, it feels like if Houston had a better or even average bullpen, they would have an even larger lead than that. And I'm sure they, that's what that'll be Houston's focus in the, at the trade deadline. Um, it feels like Houston's kind of a, I don't know if I want to say prohibitive, but certainly a, a strong favorite here. Yeah, I think so. The, the, one, the one area I come back to, and I was questioning at the outset of the year, is is the is the starting pitching. Um, you know, Zach Greinke with a sore shoulder doesn't sound very good to me. Um, you worry about how long Garcia and McCullers, right. uh, you know, are going to last. And Framber has um, some sudden strike throwing problems. Yeah, they've. I mean, there's there's you could there are question marks of variable sizes throughout the rotation. Um, let's let's put it that way. Um, between workload and injury and command. Um, you know, you can, you can nitpick all that. They do have, they do seem to have more depth, uh, than I gave them credit for at the beginning of the year, in part because, you know, Garcia has, has turned out to be the real deal. Um, very impressive from, from the outings I've watched against the Yankees and, 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 and a couple others. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's been the big thing there. Um, you're right. The bullpen looks, looks to be kind of a fright, but bullpen help is obtainable. Um, you know, even center field has, has pretty much worked out. Miles Straw has, has you know, hasn't been bad. He's done um, what they hoped for. Played good defense on the three fifty on base. Yeah, yeah, that's you know that, that that's and they, and they're and they're you know they're relatively healthy. I mean, they've got you know great balance back from Altuve, and I think that's kind of the key to all of it. And Correa as well. Yeah, Correa too. Although he's 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 down right now, but yeah, I'm I'm working on something on on uh, Vlad Junior. and uh, uh, in terms of year to year improvements. Um, in in uh, slugging in WRC plus, um, both uh, Altuve and and Correa, I think they're on both leaderboards there mm. within the, the the top fifteen, uh, in in both categories. Yeah, yep, confirmed. Um, uh, Altuve going from a three forty four slug to to four ninety eight, uh, Correa from three eighty three to five ten. Um, and uh, Altuve seventy-seven to one thirty-eight in WRC plus, and career from ninety-eight to one forty-nine. These guys are back to being stars, basically. Right. Um, you know, after 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 you know lousy and short seasons, and and uh, uh, you know that's that's really you know what you know the, the I think the biggest part of it. And and we'd be remiss not to talk about the Angels and the Mariners. Um, the Mariners in in April, I said this this team's actually kind of sneaky good, and they are kind of sneaky good. Um. And I don't, you know, they have a better record than the Yankees and the Blue Jays right now. Um, they're three and a half out of a wild card. They just brought Jared Kelnick up, back up. Um, they made some indications, according to sources, that they are actually looking to add uh, for the second half. Um, the Angels are only two games behind that. And at some point soon, they will be adding the best player in baseball for the second half. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could these two teams kind of still... I, hang around to the end there i you know i i'm i'm more skeptical about the mariners than i am about the angels actually um i've written and i've written about the angels i've probably written more about the angels than just about any american league team and that includes the yankees i mean you know having otani there is part of it the mm. only part of it i wrote about um i wrote about the rotation and, and defense and how bad it was at the beginning of the year 
you know, they did a lot of work, I think, to, to improve that rotation in the offseason. It was all going for naught because the defense was just awful. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's that's leveled off a bit in part because, you know, uh, Justin Upton seemed to find his legs uh, right, after right. a while. And, and uh, they got Rendon back, but now Rendon is down again. Um, but you're right. I mean, they're going to add, they're going to get Trout back. They're going to get Upton, who really had, had, had turned his season around um, and didn't seem to have that big a deal as far as his back, but it's, I guess, been slow to respond. Uh, the joys of being 33 years old. Um, but they're going to get those guys back. They're going to get Rendon back. And, and if those guys are in working order, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a bigger impact than just about anything that anybody adds at the deadline. Uh, from outside their organization, the, the question is whether their starting pitching can hold out, and it's been it's been pretty brutal, mostly because Dylan Bundy uh, just has 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 had a rough patches. But you look at the like the differential between their ERAs and FIPS, um, they got they're, a lot of guys. They're big, who, yeah. It's yeah, weird. I mean, that was that was part of what I was focusing on with with the, with that piece that I mentioned about their defense. Yeah, they're 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 out pitching. You know, they're they're underperforming relative to their peripherals, and some of that is on the defense. And and they have a lot of guys who consistently get strikeouts. And and um, yeah. I, I think Alex, I think Cobb could be one of your main guys there who who could help them in the second half because it's he's got one of the biggest differences I th- I believe. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Let's go to the National League, and of course we'll start with the East because that's why they what they do. Um. <laughs> You get the you get the New York Mets and like the, every time you look at something with the Mets, it feels like it's bad, and then people say bad things about the Mets, and yet they've kind of been in first place or around all year, and and it's 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 three and a half games. They're the only team in the division over five hundred. It's not like they haven't gotten help from the rest of the division. Um, they're the only game, the only team over five hundred. They have a three and a half game lead over the Phillies, who are really flawed. You know, the Braves never got going, and now they had the devastating Acuna injury. Um, you know, the Nationals like got hot and it was like, oh, here comes the Nationals. They're going into the second half after having lost eight of a 10, all of a sudden they're back to fourth place and six games out. Um, and then, you know, the Marlins are weird cause they have one of the best run differentials, but they've been in last place all year. Um, like the biggest thing, and this, there's been a, you know, it's, it's, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. There's been a big story this morning about the Mets and their, um, COVID stuff as in their inability to get to 85, um, and obviously with the Delta variant kind of ripping apart people who aren't vaccinated. Um, and that's kind of their, that might be their biggest risk to, the, to winning the East is, is having an outbreak and, and having that affect their ability to put their roster on the field. Yeah. Well, the Phillies just had an outbreak too, or at least, you know, they lost, mm-hmm. they lost uh, Aaron Nola and, and Alex Bohm to, and, and a couple other players to, to protocol. I think it was Bohm was the only one who was actually a positive there. Um, yeah, these are stupid, stupid teams. The, the, the athletic story about the Phillies guys and and just their rationalizations for blaming any kind of injury on, you know, oh, I have a stiff neck, you know, a week after getting the vaccine. It's just like it must be the vaccine. These, right. These these people are idiots. I'm sorry. They're just <laughs> you know, just, I, I I think you know I I try I try to be careful when I think about. Um, you know the the various reasons people have for for not getting vaccinated. I think they're 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 in two camps. There's one for whom it's a political statement, uh, and there's one for whom you know one group that comes from I think a you know uh, uh, demographics that I think ha- historically have been underserved by our by our health systems and and are rightly uh, you know ha- they they have not rightly but they have less access they, to healthcare and right. less access to the education and 
more reasons to distrust the system. And I think that, you know, that that's part of it. I don't want to speculate as to what the what the what the makeup of, of those of those two is outside or inside baseball. But there's some from column A and some from column B. But, you know, when you start blaming your injuries on the vaccine, you're an idiot. I'm just flat out. There's no science that says that anywhere. None. And, um, and it's it's athletes are weird things and, and professional yeah. athletes, especially who are making all this money. Like they they, they they live in very strange bubbles that we cannot begin to relate to or understand. Right. Um, and, I, and it creates unfortunate things like this. And um, but but just talking about kind of pure baseball here. Yeah, like the, Met, nobody... the Mets. The Mets are probably better than, it. and it's like, and half of it is because the division there, and half is because it's a pretty good team, and like a pretty good team is yeah. going to be enough in this in this division. Yeah, you know, guys have come around. They're they're you know their lineup is healthier than it's been just about all year. Um, you know, Michael Conforto has been in a slump, and they've 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 only got a, a couple guys who have really been fully above average all year. You know, Pete Alonso uh, um, has been has been good, but not up to back up to his rookie level. Right. Um, uh, Jonathan VR has turned out to be something of a, of, of a uh, you know of, of, of a of a big deal for them, um, filling in at, filling in at third base. But like Jeff McNeil's underperformed, James McCann has underperformed, Dominic Smith has underperformed, Kevin Pilar has stunk, uh, Conforto has been bad, Brandon Nimmo has been good since coming back. Um, the offense is a mess, um, but the Taiwan Walker signing has has and, and the Marcus Stroman return has helped augment how, you know how good Degrom is, and that's been mm-hmm. that's been enough to separate them from the pack. I mean, the Phillies have just ongoing disaster. I feel like Joe Girardi between the bullpen, the bullpen meltdowns, and just the other stuff. I think I feel like Joe Girardi probably closes his eyes eyes every night and just hopes that like he can leave his body and, and be taken <laughs> home to Jesus or something because this is this, this has got to be the like look I, I I had a lot of respect for what Girardi did in New York and I thought you know some team is going to luck into him as a good manager but this right. is just not for whatever reason it just hasn't worked this has not worked at all um and I expect that he will not last uh uh beyond this year if even to the end of this year um, just because this mix is for them is so much less than the sum of its parts. If they're the anti rays, um, <laughs> there's just, there's a lot of talent on that team. Oh my and God. It's, it's really and, good. And it's, and it's going, it's just going nowhere. It ain't working. Um, and they're, and they're, you know, they're wasting, you know, they're wasting good years. I mean, Nola hasn't, isn't having a good year, but they're, you know, wasting good years of, of Zach Wheeler and, and Bryce Harper and JT Real Mudo and, and, you know, and so on and so on. And it's just, you know, that and that bullpen. I mean, call him exterminator. <laughs> <laughs> um, the National League Central uh, has been kind of maybe the most interesting division over the last two weeks in the sense that um, Milwaukee got white hot. The Cubs fell into a sewer hole. Um, <laughs> and all of a sudden, Milwaukee had like an eight-game lead. And then all of a sudden, the Reds showed up and said, don't forget about us. They swept Milwaukee in the last series heading into uh, the break, and I'm pretty sure Milwaukee's in Cincinnati to start the, to start the second half, and um, and they're you know all of a sudden you look at standings and and you know the Reds are just four out from Milwaukee, and and you know the Cubs and the Cardinals are both a couple games under 500 and eight out. It seems like I mean the Cardinals are are kind of our Phillies, and it just never gets going. It's just kind of like they win three, then they lose three, and they win three, and lose three. Um, but are the Reds? I, I think the Reds are a real threat to Milwaukee, and I think part of that is like Milwaukee. I think is a little bit over their skis at fifty three and thirty nine. Like it always felt like 
there's a bunch of kind of good teams in this division. It's just going to come down to who gets hot. And, and the question is, is, is did Milwaukee's July hot streak, is that going to be enough for them to kind of hold on yeah. from here? I think, I think it, I think it is. And I, I, I think, you know, for me, they're, they're the most resourceful team in the division because you know that they're going to go out the deadline, despite the fact that they've, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, they're in the, the, they've put themselves in the driver's seat. They're probably, there's still areas that they can improve. Sure. Um, and, and, uh, um, you know, they came up when when I was talking to, to Dan about you know potential Joey Gallo destinations. Milwaukee could certainly be a team that that, that could be players for him. Um, you know, and, and uh, you plug him in at first base or something if you know if, if need be. Um, and you're you know, you're you improve just a just a, a dreadful situation there because uh, they just haven't gotten any production there. Um, and you know, as good as as I think the Reds are a team that that are certainly starting to come around, and their starting pitching has been, um, you know, hasn't always lived up to expectations. But but there's some good arms there. That offense, though, I just think the left side of the infield is just terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got nothing from Suarez, uh, nothing from 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 Kyle Farmer, who you knew that wasn't going to work, um, and uh, you know they've got the all stars on the outfield corners, but. You know, but but it's a very uneven lineup in terms of production, and 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 uh, I don't know. I, I think I think they'll I think they'll they'll be they'll be in the chase for a wild card spot, uh, or I mean for you know for the division. But they're I don't think they're good enough to overtake the Brewers, and I I don't see them as being uh, as likely to be aggressive at the deadline as the as the Brewers will. Right, and um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think the Brewers they trade a ton of relievers away to get you know. Willie Damas, Willie Damas, and, and some others, and um, and I think they'll end up trying to find bullpen arms in, at the deadline. Now, um, as for the Reds, like I, if you watch the Futures game, you saw Jose Barrera go deep, and I don't. I'm not saying Jose Barrera is like the world saver, but he'd be better than Kyle Farmer. Like I don't, I don't get why he's not up. But um, so let's go to the story of, the, of baseball, which is the National League West, the best division in baseball. It feels like. And this kind of goes back to the East and Central a little bit. Like, if you're in the East and Central, like, it's win the division or go home. Um, it feels, I did the math, but this was weeks ago. But, you know, like a few weeks ago, I think it was like 80%. If you used the Fangraphs playoff odds and did this, the did your probability maths if you, that you studied in high school, um, it felt like it was like, it was only 80% that the National League West would produce three playoff teams, um, the division winner and both wild cards. It still feels that way. Um, I, we've spent, three and a half months now waiting for the giants to come down to earth. And here we are. And the giants are still in first place. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think I, I, I do think that they're they're for real enough that they're going to be, you know, they're going to be a playoff team. And then we're still, you're right. We're still about, um, you know, probably above 80% or at least 80% of, of, you know, with, with uh, all those teams are, their, their, their separate odds uh, are, are above 90, 91% here. Um, if you if you if you look at our odds page and and you know the Dodgers have closed the gap to two games on the Giants we you know we have them as per, you know pretty much a, a, a cinch to make the playoffs at ninety nine and a half percent we have the the Giants and Padres at both ninety one percent decimal two uh, advantage for the Giants there which is obviously nothing um, you know given all the estimates that go, that go into these things and mm-hmm. everything that can happen um, but. Uh, 
uh, the Giants have, have proven themselves to be, you know, a combination of resourceful and 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 uh, reasonably aggressive, and I don't see why they why they would wouldn't continue. I think the thing for me that I worry about with them is whether you know, I mean, now that we they've they've got Posey on the IL, they've got Belt on the IL, they've got Longoria on the IL, all these old goats that have helped them uh, <laughs> get where they are, with the exception of Crawford, you know, are getting hurt. Um, and granted, you're, we're talking about freak injuries rather than chronic ones here for in the cases of Posey and Longoria, but you don't know that they're going to come back and, and, and be, you know, hitting at an all-star caliber when, you know, when they've, when they've uh, missed time and, and have ailments that they're healing from. Um, so, you know, I do, I do wonder about, uh, about the sustainability of what they're doing. Um, but I also think that that uh, that uh, Farhan Zaidi is. I mean, he's shown a, a, a very deft touch in in, in no question, yeah. In this roster, and, and you know the the bets that they've taken on on bounce backs, I, I just you know they hit on Gosman, they hit on Alex Wood, um, Dave Sclafani, uh, Dave Sclaf- yeah, Sclafani, uh, you know, I mean, even you know turning Donovan Solano into a useful player. Um, Mike Yastrzemski has been a great story, even if he's not having an MVP caliber season the way he did, you know, last year. Um, it's just a lot of guys, and you, I trust, I trust, you know, that that, that they're going to, you know, make it make an addition or two that that's, uh, um, you know, we're going to look at and be like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe that'll work, and and it, and, it, and it probably will. So I'm not counting them out, you know, by any stretch. And the Dodgers suddenly, you know, everyone talked about their pitching depth. All of a sudden, they're probably in the market for starters. Oh, definitely. For yeah, for I, both injuries and Trevor Bauer reasons. Yeah, they 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 have to be. I mean, I think even you know, you go back to when they lost Dustin May. I mm-hmm. think it, even then, it, it it seemed likely that they were. You know, this is a team that because they've got so many young guys and and because they went so deep in the playoffs last year, it stood to reason that they were going to be shuffling guys around. Um, you know, worried about workloads, doing a lot of you know whether it's short starts or or, or you know prime you know openers and and and, and uh, bulk guys or whatever um, that they were going to have to get kind of creative, um, and you know for a while they had that luxury, um, but uh, losing May and uh, you know even just this even if this Clayton Kershaw thing you know turns out to be the minor thing that right now it appears to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the Bauer thing you know, looms large. He is his his. Um, I don't think there's any reason to expect him to pitch this year. I think that's a I think that's a very good uh, very good possibility. Yes, that 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 he won't pitch again this year. I mean, this the the allegations against him are are, are you know pretty severe. And and uh, um, if NLB has already extended his his leave to four weeks, um, you know that's it's going to be. Uh, it, He's got he's got bigger weight coming his way if 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 this does turn out to be um, as bad as it looks. Um, so yes, I think I think that's a that that's a reasonable assumption. So you know, and you don't know what you're going to get out of David Price. He's been good. Yeah, at it, yeah, yeah. And, you know, stretching him out is 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 no trivial thing. Um, and I think you 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 definitely have to assume that you're going to need a big arm there. And and. You know, they've. This is. This might be. This is. This might be the the one where you go out and you get somebody who's got club control and, um, you know, and and, and trade Kiebert Ruiz or something like that, mm-hmm. um, because he's not getting any younger and and obviously Will Smith is is you know is 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 the man there, um, particularly if you're talking about uh, you know a future that includes the automated strike zone, uh, somewhere down the road. And the Padres are interesting in the fact that like it's, 
tough to like see like this obvious hole they would fill. Like their lineup's kind of fixed. Maybe they do something different at first base or, or catcher, I think, is a spot. Yeah. Um, but the rotation, you know, if Snell and Darvish are, are healthy, is kind of fixed. Their bullpen is both deep and good. Um, like it's, it's hard to say like this is the obvious thing they can go get. Not that they won't be aggressive because AJ Preller is their GM and he's the king of aggressive. Yeah, I think. Well, first, I, Gallo Gallo's name came up uh, for them. They've been, you know, they tried to get him last year, mm-hmm. um, and the name his you know his name is out there again. Dennis Lynn at the Athletic linked linked them again, and I think the idea is that Gallo could be in the mix at first base and 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 also uh, in the outfield corners. Um, you know, first base is probably their you know well, I guess uh, catch, catching and first base are their their their, their two weakest spots offensively. Um, but I look at the pitching right now, and the starting pitching for all of the marquee names, you've got Darvish on the IL, you've got Snell on the IL, and Snell hasn't pitched well at all. Um, Chris Paddock has kind of regressed after after showing some signs of of of, of life there. Um, uh, Denelson Lamet, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. who knows? You're just that he's he's so unpredictable, and and I think that. Uh, they probably do need some insurance there for all like like the Dodgers. They've burned through a lot of options. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I think they're kind of at a critical point. And you know, like you said, AJ Preller will be aggressive. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, <laughs> pick a Cy Young winner. They're gonna they're gonna. I mean, they're gonna think big. Yeah, like you know, you're most likely team to make to like make a deal that makes you go, "Whoa, is this the Padres?" Because yeah, it always just, is. They've been, you know they've been they've been you know doing some jaw dropping stuff you know for the last couple of years here, and I don't see any reason why um you know why they're going to stop they're going to they'll, they'll they'll figure out a way to do it um so yeah this is the most most interesting race here i think you know I, I i woke up this morning and i said well we'll just do it like it'll be like a short show and we've almost been yammering an hour now um <laughs> that's what we do we'll take a break we'll come back with josh the graffiti guy and we'll read your emails that kind of good stuff so stick around
Welcome back to the podcast, special guest time. Yeah, this is a tough week to get a guest, uh, especially on Thursday with coming out of the break. Almost every beat writer in the world is traveling somewhere, and so it's a perfect week for our listener of the week. Our listener of the week is a PhD student in criminology at Georgia State University, and he is studying graffiti. He doesn't even have to pretend to dislike graffiti. He is allowed and frankly encouraged to argue for why we need more graffiti. So joining us from his luxurious accommodations in Atlanta, Georgia, on the campus of Georgia State University, it's Josh the Graffiti Guy. Josh, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. Um, What, how did you <laughs> end up being someone who's getting their doctorate in graffiti? Uh, you know, I, I kind of ask myself that every day. Um, <laughs> it. So when we when we think of graffiti, you, you know, you tend to think of like New York City, L.A., but Atlanta is actually a huge, huge graffiti scene, um, especially since like the 90s, early 2000s. It's just been it's blown up down here. And um, I joke that, you know, I used to drive to campus every day during undergrad and would pass under this uh, this highway overpass where this uh, huge writer in Atlanta named Vane, V-A-Y-N-E, just this big, giant vein on the side of the, just in the middle of the highway. Uh, And you can only drive by that so many times before, you know, you sit there and you go, how in the hell, why in the hell? Just, you know, all of a sudden there was just so many questions. I started looking into it. And uh, now we're here. I don't know. I, you know, it's, you got to kind of pick your spots. And uh, this seemed to interest me. And I started digging and I realized there's a whole lot more than, than I originally thought. And uh, so far, no one has told me I can't. So I kind of figured I'd, I'd ride this out and see what happens. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut to the end here real quick, which is just like, so what, you will have your, your doctorate when? Uh, so I'm actually, this uh, fall semester is going to be my first. Uh, first semester as a PhD student, but uh, I am hoping, you know, the I'm funded for three years, so if it takes any more than that, then it'll get a little bit sticky. But so not only are you getting your doctorate in graffiti, you're getting paid to get your doctorate in graffiti. Yes. Fantastic. Uh, nice work if you can get it. Absolutely. I just, I, I, I mean, I, you know, I feel like if I can pull this off, I deserve to be up there, you know, with like PT Barnum and <laughs> on the Mount Rushmore of grifters. <laughs> Um, so, so my question, I guess, is, is if you get your doctorate in three years and you have a doctorate in graffiti, like what have you thought this far ahead? Like, what does one do? <laughs> okay, so you're done. You, I, you know, and I, I, the few doctorate people I know just don't know how to stop going to school. But like, if you get your doctorate, like, what's what do you do now? Like, what's next? Uh, he gets to yeah, append no. PhD to all of his graffiti. Right. <laughs> No, I mean, I've I've definitely pigeonholed myself into, I got no choice but to hide out in academia and just avoid trying to get a real job anytime soon. But, uh, and and that's kind of always been the, the plan for me. I grew up, both my parents teach, uh, you know, elementary school, but I grew up saying, oh, I'm not going to be a teacher. I'm not going to be a teacher, never. And then as I got older, I was like, man, summer's off sound pretty cool. And, you know. <laughs> boss can't ask you to stay late, you know? And then, um, so like going into undergrad, I thought I was going to be a, a, a high school teacher. And then 
I was in college and I was like, ah, oh, this rules. This is way better. Uh, so like that was kind of the plan start. Uh, the the tricky thing is going to be trying to pivot just enough to make myself more marketable because I you know I would like to be a, a stay in academia, be a professor, do research, um, and it's just going to be kind of framing it as part of something larger, whether it's like, uh, there's all these like kind of areas of like this visual criminology. And so that's how do we see the world and um, stuff like, you know, we can use pictures to help aid in, in interviews with people um, and hopefully make the, the data we're collecting a little bit better. And so um, how exactly I'm going to do that, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, no, no, there's absolutely nothing unless I sell out and go, yeah, here's how we stop them. Uh, and I have absolutely no interest in doing that. So, so let, I mean, let's talk about, I mean, obviously graffiti has been around since man could draw on cave walls. Um, but when I think about modern graffiti and, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, cause I very well might be like, I remember a time where you would see really interesting stuff and, and really very cool and attractive and, and also sizable stuff that was real street art and i feel like when i see graffiti now it's just kind of tags um is that just the grumpy old man in me because it feels like the really pretty stuff is now um for lack of a better term kind of state sponsored like oh that wall has like a, a you know a big thing about the the 92 bulls but the city you know hired some artist to do that yeah and Sure. I mean, we can always sit here and go, oh, it was way, way better back in my day. I mean, I'm only 25, but even I'm still sitting here going, oh, you know, back in my day, a la 2014. Um, so there's actually kind of a lot to unpack there, I think. Uh, the, the first big thing is what is graffiti? Because um, if you talk to a lot of these writers, they're going to sit there and go, nah, if somebody's sitting here paying you, if you're doing something for the city, then that's not graffiti. It's got to be illegal and it's got to be, you know, some people even, it, it, it has to be a name. It can't be a picture. It can't be, you know, maybe you can throw a little cartoon or something in there. But if you're doing a big mural, that's just street art. Um, just, some people love to draw a really, really hard line. Um, you know, people like Banksy, they'll sit there and go, man, not only is he a sellout because he went to, you know, like modern art and everything, but... Uh, you know, he just does stencils and stuff like that. That's not graffiti. That's something totally different. Um, but a really interesting thing is, and uh, Chicago is kind of seen as a big, I guess, case study for this. Um, a lot of cities, you know, we've been writing on walls illegally for, you know, since the dawn of man. Um, and a bunch of cities have tried to do a lot about it. Um, Chicago came out, uh, I want to say maybe in the 90s, but I'm really bad with dates. And, and they said, you know what, to heck with this. Any graffiti that is reported will be painted over within 24 hours. And there, and you know, everybody patted themselves on the back and said, ha ha, we defeated graffiti. And <laughs> every graffiti writer in Chicago said, all right, cool. I'm not wasting my time doing these huge, big, intricate pieces. If they're going to be gone in 24 hours, I am just going to do hundreds of tags. Um, and so there's certain cities and, and certain areas in cities where you aren't going to see because people care and they report it and there's all this pressure to get it, uh, they call it buffed or, you know, painted over. Uh, then graffiti writers in turn have gone, all right, fine. Uh, if I will 
make sure I don't do a piece that's going to take me longer to do than it takes you to paint over it. And, and so, then, and so this is a public yeah. policy thing. As, as someone who's you know was in Chicago throughout the entire of the entirety of the nineties, um, and I remember like the graffiti teams they were called, it was like the graffiti blasters is what they were called. Um, and you'd see the trucks driving around and and with their with their power washer and then things like that, and they would pop things off. And and so you're saying like this kind of public policy towards graffiti is is something that kind of in a way kind of took some of the artistry away from graffiti. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think so. Uh, whether you love it or hate it, I, I think seeing something that is done at a a high level. You know, whether it's it's sports, we'd all rather go see an MLB game than go see some random little league game where the coach has to remind the kid what way to, you know, go to first base. First base is over there. It's it's inherently going to be more entertaining, more interesting. Um, and so, sure, we can sit there and go, yeah, they solved the graffiti problem. Now it's just tags. But I, I think that's it. I will say this. I personally enjoy tags. I think there's a lot of. Uh, artistry and there's some serious skill but to you know the uninitiated or you know whatever ivory tower language you want to use um, it just looks like scribbles and chicken scratch and it did you have to kind of like become literate in tagging because I, I have a friend who's who's kind of into graffiti and we'd be you know walking down a street in Chicago and he'd say oh there's x jesus 27 i'd look at this i don't see it he'd go oh there's the x there's the j and the two and the sevens down here and stuff and like did you have to kind of teach yourself almost like this literacy for how they create their characters yeah no absolutely um i got very very lucky in that um you know a mix of social media being huge and atlanta having such a, a vibrant scene there's uh, a lot of people who are called like benchers and that stems from New York sitting on a subway bench watching uh, trains roll by, uh, like subways roll by and uh, seeing all the graffiti on there. And people would literally hang out and just sit and watch as these, you know, trains all having different graffiti on them drove by. And so there's a, a ton of people who are kind of in and around the graffiti scene who don't write or don't write primarily. And more than once, especially getting started, I, I would, you know, take a picture or something and send it to one of these guys and goes, what the hell does this say? Um, I know it says something and I know it see it everywhere. I just, I, you know, none of this looks like English. Uh, in like Philadelphia in particular, they have this uh, style that they call uh, a wicked. And it's like a point of eye that like, unless you came up in the graffiti scene in Philadelphia, it's absolutely illegible and i still kind of have a working theory that nobody actually knows what they say but uh, <laughs> people from philly are like no you just got to be here you know if you learn then you know it's just adding a little extra little bits of kind of style to it so i i have to ask without <clears throat> knowing what the statute of limitations is in georgia have you tagged anything in your life uh no uh, i came about this very kind of circuitously, I guess. Um, kind of like you were saying, I have a, a number of, I refer affectionately as dirtbag friends who uh, were, you know, just teenage vandals going out there and, you know, whether it was a, just a penis or if it was actually like some words or, you know, something more intricate. And so I'd always kind of been 
like one link removed from it. Yeah. Uh, but no, nah, it, it's just one of those things that I don't know. It's interesting, but I think I know too much about it now to like, I respect it too much to even try to throw my hat in the ring. Um, just because I've seen the the time and energy that, that these writers have, you know, you start talking about these writers who are known on like a national level and a quote unquote quick rise to national fame is a decade. Um, and so I'm just kind of sitting here going, nah, you know, uh, that ship sailed maybe one day, but. I, I, I assume like as part of, of, of your studies, you have gone on nighttime journeys with graffiti artists. Is that correct? Uh, not as I would like to just, uh, it just hasn't worked out so far, but, uh, yeah, there's been a, a, a couple times where there's, uh, there was a, a writer in particular who split time between Atlanta and LA who was named Nels and he passed away, I think two or three years ago. And so every year on his birthday, they have uh, a bunch of writers he, he's with, um, they call it Nails Day, and they go out, like, this year it was in uh, Macon at this, uh, which is two hours south of Atlanta. And, uh, you know, this little art area where they were totally allowed to write on these walls, they did some murals and stuff, a couple did big Nails pieces, uh, like, in memory of him. Just so happened to be right next to a uh, a train yard. And... You know, I hung out and sure enough, once enough drinks were in there, they were like, all right, well, I'm bored with this wall. Let's go over here where I'm not allowed to. Um, <laughs> and so that was just a really, really cool experience was just getting to tag along and, and kind of see what all they did. I mean, you talked about this person who became, or people becoming kind of nationally known. Um, is there any sort of commercial aspect to becoming nationally known or are you just trying to are you you know i guess the question is why are people tagging everything is it just to put their name out there and is there anything beyond it beyond just putting their name out there right uh i mean there's all these different kind of schools of thought uh i mean in the 80s you had like you had like keith herring and and um uh, like basquiat and people like that who were kind of at their heart graffiti artists who became I don't know what you want to call it, but more like like known artists who sold work like is that still a thing or are these people is it solely just I want to be known as the graffiti guy and so I'm tagging everything with now yeah no I I like to I like to kind of call it uh, like capital a art um with this idea that um for some, yeah, for some people it is totally, hey, if I can make a big enough name for myself and somebody likes my style, uh, especially, you know, late 90s, early early 2000s, it's like raw, rough. Uh, it was from the streets, but in like a palatable way uh, for like upper middle class and upper class people. So no, absolutely, there's a lot of people who do kind of see it as, or like their end goal is, yeah, no, if I can make a, you know, a couple bucks on the side with this, then absolutely. Um, criminology in general has, uh, in my opinion, especially as of late, has, there's different people. There's going to be a line, lock them up, throw away the key. It's the only way yeah. to solve crime. But I think there's also a lot of people who have kind of almost gone too far in the other direction where it's trying to explain away 
any any personal responsibility for a lot of this. And in some cases, yeah, absolutely, you know, mental health, stuff like that. Uh, but there's a whole, there's a common explanation for why graffiti is a thing for a while is a lot of like, oh, well, you know, these people are oppressed and marginalized and they don't, this is the only way they have a voice and they're in, interacting with the world around them and trying to reclaim the power and, and you know, so it's all this. We can't really blame them until they're given more legitimate access to, you know, uh, to society and, and able to engage in whatever. The, the, more, the more people I talk to, the more they're just like, no, this is fun. It's really fun to do right. something. You're, it's really, really fun to do something you're not supposed to. And yeah, I, I it is. To, I get to drive by the next day and see my name up on some bridge or on the back of some highway sign or hell, maybe it's even just on the bottom of a lamppost and nobody else is looking for it, but I know it's there. Um, and so, yeah, like, and it's not to discredit and say that like there isn't, because there's, you know, it definitely becomes political, just at least in how the state or, you know, the city or the nation kind of responds to it. But a lot of people are just in this for fun and very much the same way that I think a lot of us will do something and then go, oh, I can make some money off of this. Cool. Yeah, sure. I'm not going to turn down money. But I think there's definitely a lot of people who will make money on the side, but they take a lot of pride in being like, no, like I, you're not going to see, like, I'm not going to shift and, and jump ship and get totally commercial with it. Um, it still has a bit of that, like, you know, punk rock energy to it. And sure. how, how are they making money on the side? Are they, are they like selling works that are not on walls or, or how are they doing this? Uh, so like there's this one, uh, anybody in or, uh, in or around Atlanta or, you know, coming through this great uh, uh, art gallery called uh, Cat Eye Creative um, here in Atlanta. And this guy who runs it happens to be friends with a whole bunch of the pretty prominent graffiti writers. And so he'll do shows and uh, whether it's a you know some highway like some little sign right lane ends or you know whatever uh, a, a whole bunch of graffiti writers will do you know kind of this more like artistic sort of work um, mm. and will show that in a gallery and if somebody buys it they buy it uh, I mean there was one the other day it was like you know it, it looked the size of like a pretty decent sized filing cabinet but it was a big pack of Marlboro Reds that this writer Vane and uh, one of his buddies, and I'm blanking on, on who it was, but, you know, they did this kind of big, e intricate tag, or I guess piece on the either side of it, and it sold for like 1500 So, you know, it's not not enough to make a living on, but you sell two, three, four of those a year, That's that ain't bad. Yeah. It definitely helps. So I got I got a, a couple of questions for you here. I live in New York City. I've lived in New York City for the last 26 years. Uh, graffiti is not something I know a ton about, but um, I remember when I first moved here, it seems seemed to be, you know, kind of coming out of a, uh, a real crackdown uh, on graffiti. This was I moved here during the Giuliani administration and mm -hmm. uh, in, in the mid 90s and and. You know, at that point, they had the the graffiti-proof subway cars by then, and um, the one thing I remember about that time when I was living in Manhattan were those giant 
uh, revs and cost tags. And it was always so it just inscrutable to me. I had no idea what any of it meant uh, other than they were ubiquitous. But uh, I wondered, you know, obviously New York City is, is, has got to be, you know, a, a fertile ground for study uh, if, you're, if you're studying graffiti and its history and its demographics and things like that. Uh, what, what can you tell me about the state of things then and now? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, and like, revs and costs go way back. You know, that's that's kind of one of those uh, one of those things where it, it's fairly ubiquitous with with uh, with New York graffiti, for sure. Um, yeah, like, it always just seemed like, I mean, it was, it, it seemed pretty artless. And, and, I, and, you know, it's like, just, you know, white on white on brick or whatever, or black on 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 white and just never you know i i mean i've seen more colorful colorful graffiti and i guess i think of like um the five points building that you'd see on the seven line going out to 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 uh uh shea stadium uh or or city field for a while but i think that's gone now but um you know like i said i kind of miss the heyday of of graffiti here and so i'm sort of I've, i've never paid too much mind to it other than um, you know, sort of a retrospective view when you see like a 70s movie or like, yeah, we just watched The Warriors um, a few weeks ago. Uh, that was the first movie I went to in a theater post, uh, uh, post-pandemic post was was at the Alamo Drafthouse. And of course, there's just a ton of graffiti in there. And it's just, uh, especially on, on, on the subways or whatever. Yeah, and it, I think just kind of like anything, it, it is subject to uh, just kind of these, different styles and different preferences as like aesthetically speaking sort of kind of coming and going uh, when when you think of like old school new york graffiti you think of these like big kind of bubbly and it's mm-hmm. ultimately pretty readable right yeah. um, or or even like you're saying uh i i've seen the the pictures uh, there at least one very big one it, it's just uh, literally looks like they took a paint roller with some white paint and just up on a wall. Um, and so like, there's definitely been kind of stylistic and aesthetic changes. Uh, Vane, the, again, going back to my Atlanta guy, uh, kind of got started with these like big, very, I hate to say plain, but plain uh, readable, rollers where he would literally take a paint roller and it would just be these big block letters um and then has since kind of gone i mean he still he does everything and does it everywhere and i swear all the time i still don't know how like throw a dead cat and you're hitting at least one or two pieces but uh (laughs) but he has definitely kind of experimented with and played around more and just the the, the way I kind of explain it to people is that, uh, you know, th- this kind of hip hop graffiti is, is typically what it's called. Um, started late seventies, early eighties. Um, and so that's kind of what we're seeing with like, you know, New York and, and when you, when most people think of graffiti, right. but, uh, as more people get involved and it's around longer and people kind of steal and tweak and stuff, it, it's, going to inherently kind of grow and adapt and change. Um, and so the one of the best examples is in uh, Philly, one of the one of kind of the, the, the grandfathers of modern graffiti, 
or whatever you want to call it, is this, this cat, Cornbread. And he literally just wrote his name, Cornbread, just as if he was like, not even a signature, not anything fancy, no arrows, no halos, no little stars, nothing, just wrote Cornbread. Uh, and really because it was kind of coming from this idea of like, oh, my name's not supposed to be here, but I'm going to paint it here. Uh, and then you start seeing people go, oh, well, we can make it bigger. Oh, well, we can add some stuff. Oh, we can, you know, make the letters a little wonky or add this kind of curly cute to it. Or, oh, we can do this. And, and then it becomes, well, if we have arrows, what if I connect these arrows to these letters and do and So now we have both in tags and in, in terms of bigger, larger pieces, we have these like crazy complex things where you can sit there and look at it and it, it almost feels like you're sitting there looking at like a like an abstract piece of art going like what does it mean <laughs> but like you're just sitting there going all right i think that might be an s i don't know what anything else is and you kind of have to be in the know and kind of know who's writing in, in what city uh, and you know things will kind of come and go chrome was huge for a long time uh, and then a whole bunch of people go man chrome doesn't last in the sun um uh, black and white, whether it's a black outline with a white fill or a white outline on a black fill is seems to be kind of one of the only things that's that's really stayed strong from the start of graffiti to now. Um, but yeah. Well, we, we talked earlier about and just again, like Jane, Jane lived in New York. I lived in Chicago for a long time and Chicago graffiti blasters and, and you know, Chicago's graffiti blasters is still a thing, you know, and, and, in 2021 um and then they, they even brag on their on the city website for graffiti blasters is that like it's become a model for other cities in the united states and the world and and people from everywhere from san antonio to los angeles to warsaw have come see what they're doing and try to copy it how has public policy towards graffiti changed over the last i guess 10 to 20 years right um I think the biggest thing is just a whole lot of people got really sick and tired of being like, all right, this is it. This is how we stop them. I mean, you, at the end of the day, it's cost effective to sit and go, we're going to put that anti-patent co anti cohab on the subway system on everything, you know. And so then it became, let's get a little more creative with this. Let's see what we do. I mean, there's stuff even going back to, I want to say late 80s, early 90s, in terms of like academic papers where they're like, hey, we talked to a bunch of graffiti writers and we did something that I guess no one else done before, which was ask a whole bunch of graffiti writers, hey, what would make you stop painting illegally? Uh, and a lot of the overwhelming response was like, give me more opportunities and places where I can paint legally. It's not gonna. It's not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination, but a, a whole bunch of people were like, "No, nah, if there was somewhere where I could like do some big intricate pieces and not worry about it being painted over by tomorrow, or, you know, I can actually spend some time and know that some people are gonna see it before it disappears forever, then yeah, I would probably do that uh, instead of risking life and limb, running out on the highway or you know climbing up these abandoned buildings. And so there, there definitely has been kind of a shift. Um, and it's, it's sort of fold in that a bunch of people said, all right, well, this isn't working, you know, just trying to 
paint over the stuff faster than the graffiti writers can paint it is is we're gonna it's a losing battle right. um but then a, a whole bunch of it's funny how capitalism works a whole bunch of people saw ways to go hey this could be good we can make some money off of this we can and so you have these kind of creative cities now where uh there's kind of like a uh pretty hip area down here in Atlanta called Little Five Points. Um, and it's kind of hippie-ish. There's a bunch of thrift stores and it's kind of like a punk rock sort of. Some hot bars are down there and stuff like that. Uh, very kind of punk vibes. And um, they go, screw it. <laughs> you want to put graffiti up? Put graffiti up. It kind of helps add to the aesthetic here. And so they, they're kind of co-opting it a little bit. Uh, there's a, the, another area, it's like a little, um, I guess kind of akin to like a, a permanent farmer's market where uh, called Crog Street. And uh, there's this Crog Street tunnel that is just covered in graffiti and painting. And at, the city has kind of gone, you know what, go ahead. We're not even going to try to stop this. Right. Uh, and so it, it has, but it has become this kind of local attraction where you see all the, the, the white girls, upper middle class who live out in the suburbs coming in and taking pictures right. at Crock Street because it's a cool Instagram background and things. And so it, it has become this attraction in and of itself. Uh, and there's actually a, a, a paper by this uh, Stefano Block, it's out of uh, University of Arizona. And he used to write graffiti. He was, uh, wrote Cisco uh, as part of the CBS crew out in LA. Uh, the dude's done it all. And he argues that that's actually probably the worst thing we can, we can do if we want graffiti to stay around. Um, and by kind of allowing it in these very palatable, very, uh, you know, you can do it here, but not over here. You can do it this way, but not that way. Um, it really kind of takes the teeth out of graffiti. You know, yeah. kind of, there's, there's like a whole outlaw punk rock kind of energy to it that is entirely lost when you're letting the city go. Yeah, sure. Do it here. And it's like, hell yeah, graffiti. Um, and he kind of makes the argument that it's, it, this could potentially lead to sort of the downfall of graffiti, quote unquote, as we know it. Uh, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. Do you see Banksy as a graffiti artist or just his own kind of little separate thing in a corner over here? And and I guess my even more important, like, do, does the graffiti scene see Banksy as a graffiti artist or just like an art prankster over in a corner has nothing to do with them? <coughs> oh, man, that is... Uh, there's no real general consensus. Uh, and that to me was fascinating because I kind of came in thinking like, man, he's a sellout. He's doing this, you know, oh, cool. You got this painting that shreds itself. Look at you. Uh, but there's a lot of people who will sit there and go like, hey, man, he, he's really, really cool. Like this is, I don't know if it's, you know, capital G graffiti, um, but he, and he, he definitely started off that way. Um, there's a, a really interesting thing is to kind of about, uh, there was this, uh, this writer who went by uh, King Robbo and he makes he had some beef back in the day. <laughs> and, uh, and that's like some real graffiti. 
uh, and like you can look at it. Yes, this is graffiti. It, this isn't stencils. This isn't whatever. This is graffiti. Uh, there's a whole lot of writers that you'll talk to and sit there and go, man, if there's places in the UK that are sitting there and going, oh, we found a Banksy piece. Let's put uh, let's put plexiglass over it so nobody can mess with it. And then now we can put that on like the, the town tourism site and go, oh, you can come see Banksy over here. Then no, you're, it's not graffiti. At that point, if if the city is not only accepting it, but sitting here and taking steps to protect and preserve it, then it, it's not graffiti. Uh, ultimately, I'm kind of of the, the fight. I don't know that it really matters. Uh, at least what I think. Um, but it, it's definitely a, a sticky spot. And like, again, uh, Stefano Block has been like, yeah, man, I don't know is or isn't graffiti, but I think it's really sick. And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's cool. It's like totally a, a fair viewpoint to have. Um, and it's also kind of like highlights the, the issue like you were kind of talking about before with the murals, Kevin, where it's like, is this street art? Is this graffiti? Are they the same thing? Where does that overlap happen? Um, and there's a lot of people who will like sit there and go, no, Banksy used to do graffiti and now he does street art and now he's just art art. Um, and they kind of view it as like, you know, sh sure, like a career trajectory, but also kind of more specifically a uh, kind of a shifting almost of mediums, mm -hmm. like the fact that it's all paint on wall. So I, to finish up, I kind of want to understand your doctorate here in the sense that you are you decided to get a doctorate studying graffiti in order to find out what? Uh, man, find out a whole bunch of things. Uh, the the first the the big thing that really got me going was this idea that. Every single time one of these graffiti writers writes their name, whether it's a tag or a bigger piece or whatever, they are literally signing a crime they committed. That would be, it, it's, I mean, even beyond just like leaving, you know, we see like, oh, these serial killers leave calling cards. These dudes are, it may not be their, their given name, but they, part of this is building a reputation. And so I'm sitting here going, in the city of Atlanta, $500 is felony property damage. And, man, if you hit the wrong thing, those those highway signs are big. I have to imagine it costs more than 500 bucks to replace one of those. Uh, and so there's, there's uh, L.A. used to do this a lot, uh, New York as well. Um, these two, before we you know, paint over or, or, you know, pressure wash this, this stuff off this wall, we're going to take a picture and we're going to put it in our file and damn it, it may be years, but when we catch you with a can of spray paint in the middle of this, you know, big vein piece or Banksy or, you know, you name it, we're going to sit here and go, cool, we got you on this one offense. Oh, we also have like photo evidence of 30 other times you've done this. Uh, and so LA used to stack that shit into a felony charge and it would be not 30 inst instances of this misdemeanor, you know, fame trespassing, whatever. They would go, Hey, you did this 30 times. We estimate this total value to be, you know, X hundred or thousands of dollars. Uh, we're going to press charges. 
And so that, that to me blew my mind is oftentimes, uh, you know, my advisor has done all kinds of stuff with, uh, carjacking and, and burglary. And, and the key there is it makes my life exponentially easier if nobody, if I leave absolutely no trace aside from, you know, a broken window or something. Uh, and, but these guys are out there just writing their name on stuff and, and what on earth could motivate somebody to, to welcome that much risk. Mm. Um, and it's recognition, fame. Some people just enjoy the rush from it. Uh, I've since shifted, uh, still, you know, dragged my feet a little bit. I had work and everything. So, uh, I haven't actually done my master's thesis yet, but, uh, that's going to be the first thing I knock out. I was hoping to do it this summer, but you know, plans changed. Uh, but my big thing now is how these graffiti writers present, present themselves on social media. Uh, oh, cool. This, they love Instagram for obvious reasons. You can post pictures and, but, uh, the now disgraced sheriff of, uh, Clayton County, which is the neighboring County to, uh, to Atlanta, uh, made this whole big grandstanding post about, oh, you know, we got rid of this gang graffiti today. And it was a, it was a vein piece. And anybody who knows anything about graffiti is go, man, it's not a gang. It's just one dude who, you know, really loves graffiti. Uh, but he, you know, starts citing broken nose theory and, you know, we're going to show that Clinton County, we don't allow this kind of crime and blah, blah, blah. And a whole bunch of graffiti writers shared that on their stories on Instagram. And were like, oh, man, I didn't know Bane was in a gang. Or, oh, you better watch out for all these gangs. And just clowning on the guy. And that blew me away because I'm sitting here going, all right. So, like, they're not at all afraid. And, like, Bane shared it on his own thing. And I'm sitting here going, like, okay, so you aren't at all worried about any sort of risk and you know, you meet some of these guys and they're sitting here talking all this smack and, you know, acting all tough and from the street. And it's like, oh, no, you just like dropped out of art school. You're like upper middle class white dude. You look just like me. And then you talk to other people who are sitting here like on Instagram being like, oh, yeah, man, you know, I got my nine on me. And if, you know, come say that to my face and see what happened. They like portray themselves as these like tough dudes that are sitting out here being like, yo, if, you know, selling hard drugs on Instagram. And you meet them in person and they like, oh, you know, you need some blow. And I'm sitting here. I'm like, oh, man, you are the real deal. Okay, <laughs> cool. No, I'm good. Thanks. But like, I'll keep you in mind. Um, and so like that, it's, you know, kind of rooted in like sociology and all that stuff. But that to me is very fascinating. It's kind of how some of these large life people are actually we only think of them as larger than life because we get to see them through a lens that they have total control over in terms of what they post. You know, they're not posting. Uh, I, I started this piece and the train rolled away on me. Uh, they're posting the finished stuff. They're posting their absolutely A1 stuff. And so I think, I, you know, maybe there's something there, maybe there's not. But uh, the other stuff is also just kind of like how, what would make you stop? What role do uh, girlfriends and wives play? Because graffiti writers are typically male. And I've met a couple, and I've met their wife, who was seven and a half months pregnant, and she's hanging out on Nell's Day, sitting, sitting up till two in the morning with us, fully pregnant on a camp chair, sitting there talking about it, asking him if he needs water, or help me to get that can, or find this cap. And I'm sitting here going, like, this is, this is so much more than just a graffiti writer. Um, right. So, yeah. 
So, so to finish up with you, Josh, and then as always, thanks for coming on. You know, when I told you that our co-host would be Jay Jaffe, Jay is famous for many, many things. Um, but one <laughs> niche, of the things, niche, niche, famous, as we used to say, right? Exactly. What, but one of his, <laughs> one of his niches, of course, the Hall of Fame, and and a big part of that Hall of Fame comes from his system of Jaws. And you said, "Oh, Jay, Jay has his own graffiti artist who is a, just a testament to Jay's work." Can you talk about him for a second? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, there's this cat Jaws who uh, when when <laughs> well, I when Kevin would call me Jay. Where does Jaws Jay do was, his work? Yeah, uh, I want to say San Francisco. I think he might have been in Texas for a minute. I'll be entirely honest. It's tough to follow some of these dudes when they fly around the country. But uh, one thing I know for sure is he is part of one of my favorite named graffiti crews, the Tits Crew. Uh, <laughs> And so I was kiss, all too kiss, happy to like, sit there and kiss. P I T S. Oh, tits crew. Okay, it's it's, it's all yeah. tits crew. Tits crew. Okay, got it. Uh, and so you know, I'm five years old at heart, so that gave me a, <laughs> a chuckle. And and so he just he just he 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 tags everything with jokes. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Have you so ever talked I, to him about the Hall of Fame? No, but I will. I will do my best to. I'm. I'm sure he's a big baseball guy. You know, I don't know where else he would get that inspiration. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm googling. I'm googling this here. Uh, Jaws and tit screw. This is Jaws graffiti tit screw. This is going to be uh, quite a quite a quite a feather in my search history. Cap. Yeah, that's. Gonna I was going to say you. You got to be. You got to be real careful with how you enter that into Google. Or yeah, you're going to get some stuff you don't want to see. Um, well, Josh, I want to thank you for coming on. You are now Josh the Graffiti. You are now the official graffiti expert for Chin Music Podcast. Um, we congratulate you on your ability to convince people to pay you to study graffiti. Uh, and next time we have a question about graffiti, we'll get in touch. Yeah, please do. Thank you guys for uh, having yeah, me. Thanks on. a lot. Thanks so much.
welcome back to the podcast. Thanks to Josh, the graffiti guy, for joining us, as well as uh, Jay has has Googled our, our friend Jaws, the graffiti artist, and I think he has a new Twitter background, or at least he should. <laughs> I'll do something with it. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, our musical guest this week is um, the, the, the good folks at, at Don Giovanni Records, who I think are becoming the official independent label of the podcast, always happy to provide stuff. And this is the new album by Izzy True. Izzy True was formed in upstate New York in 2015 and currently based out of Chicago, Illinois, which is a great city to be based out of. Uh, project's gone through many lineups of the years, over the years, always led by Izzy Reedy on guitars and vocals, currently joined by our friend Sam Goldstein, no relation, on drums, and Curtis Oren on backs, bass, sax, and flute, which is a hell of a combination. This is uh, from their new record, Our Beautiful Baby World, which came out again on Don Giovanni Records in May. Uh, it has been described as a bad drawing of a rock record, which I think <laughs> is great, and I really have no idea what it means. Um, it was recorded in Rock Island, Illinois, which is a hell of a little crumbling industrial town um, not near Chicago. It's on the other side of the state on the Mississippi River right across from where Quad Cities is. Um, and it was recorded at Roz Talks, a well-loved bar music venue in the humble Midwest on reel-to-reel tape, old school. Um, but good, nice, very pleasant indie rock sound. It's Izzy True. It's on Don Giovanni Records, and you can check him out over at Don Giovanni Records' website. You ready for emails, Jay? Yeah, bring it. First email comes from Juan. And Juan says, I am a weird listener in that I actually describe myself as a casual baseball fan these days. I used to be a Bangrafts and BP hardcore reader. I did a term project for my statistics class where I did a decade-long regression analysis on UZR and win probability. I'd go to I'd go to Northwest League games and take video. When I was at Oregon State as an older student, I would put on a polo shirt. You don't have to dress like them. And carry in a clipboard and stopwatch after getting in with my student ticket and just stand by the scouts. And then I saw all I needed and I just kind of stopped paying attention too much. The All-Star Game roster the last few years have been kind of a surprise to me. I've literally never heard about sticky stuff or spin ray analytics until I started listening to chin music. So listening to so many people talk about how baseball kind of uh, talk down about baseball kind of bums me out. Maybe we all need to remember why we watch. It may be weird civic regional pride and attachment or it's watching humans do super stuff. I casually threw on a Padres Rockies game last weekend under the influence of an edible. And it illuminated why baseball is better than ever. There's never been an era with more aesthetically appealing baseball. Dudes throwing 97-mile-hour sliders like it's nothing and hitting balls from hand positions I can't physically contort myself into. Every infielder is a slick fielder with a gold chain and the ability to throw people out from the grass on a backhand. It's just hot boys doing hot boy shit every night in the summer. And that's really why I watch. I, I love this email, and I agree that it, it is hot boy shit. And and I, my question is, like, I, mean, I think we saw some of this during the All-Star weekend, and I think you are a better judge than I am of this, which is, um, I've gone plenty of rants on this show and elsewhere about modern baseball television broadcasts, especially on a national level, um, being commandeered by old ex-players who spend three hours complaining about baseball. But getting away from that garbage... And thinking about like what we saw in the All Star Game and what we've seen the first half of the season, which was kind of reflected in the All Star Game, you know, with with what Shohei Otani has done, which is historic, with you know guys like Vladimir Guerrero and and Fernando Tatis and Acuna and all these players, are we entering 
are we in or at least entering a golden age of the game? Yeah, you know, I think that we've been talking about this, you know, is within certainly within Fangraphs and, and I think within at least a corner of our industry for, for a few years. But we've got better athletes than ever playing this game. Undoubtedly. And, you know, and some of the guys you mentioned, I mean, the power speed combinations of the guys you just named. Um, Tatis Acuna, which that that injury is just gutting. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the bat speed of Guerrero, the two-way Otani. Uh, Mike Trout, you know, we we can go on and on, is fucking remarkable. And if you're not appreciating that stuff right now, uh, on some level, pick another um, sport. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're you it's don't. Not, this is not for you. I don't know. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. That said, and 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 we could go on. There's 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 dozens of other players that we that we could that we could include in this. I mean, there's you know different different ways. Um, you know, to look at it. That said, I think the same time, you know, as somebody who, who watches baseball for a living and writes about baseball for a living, I, you know, and and advocated a lot of the stuff that 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 I think has you know has gone from being outsider nerd shit to to being kind of the prevailing tendency in the game. I think we're we're at we're in an, an aesthetic cul-de-sac. I don't know that this is the most aesthetically appealing baseball to, to use uh Juan's term. I think, you know, the to me I still get bummed out about the the uh um the lack of balls in play, uh the increasing amount of time between pitches and I am you know and I'm I'm ag- I'm agreeing with with some of what you know the powers that be feel about the game too that, that it needs it needs an update, and I don't think I don't think the solution is some of the you know I don't agree with some some of the solutions that have been proposed, but but I do think that baseball you know is in some ways is a less watchable sport um, than it was twenty thirty years ago, um, and I, I you know I, I I have to see this in some ways through through the eyes of my you know going on five year old daughter here as I try to teach baseball to her. There's a lot of downtime. Baseball does not, you know, does can lose your attention pretty quickly um, if you don't um, grasp at least some of the, you know, some of the the nuances of the game. It's just not. It's becoming not that fun to watch in in ways. I mean, yes, you can see, uh, you know, an Aaron Judge home run, or you know, or or um, some of, you know some of the other exciting stuff that that you know by the by these players that we, that we've mentioned. But there's just there's too much dead time. Um, and there are things that, that I think detract from it and, and things that I think, you know, still do need addressing. And I know we've talked about this the last time I was on the rules changes that are, uh, you know, that are percolating in the minor leagues and, and, you know, and the stuff that just got talked about at the, at at the, uh, the BBWA meeting with Manfred about the possibility of, you know, legislating shifts out of existence and things like that, that, you know, some of this stuff will, might help some of this stuff won't, some of it feels very gimmicky. Um, and so I do worry about that aspect of things. And I think, you know, I, I, I think we, we do need to be mindful of, of making sure that baseball remains, you know, watchable and, and, and things, you know, considerations like that. But isn't some of this the product of the fact that the athletes are so good now? Yeah. In some ways, I, th- I, I think it is. I mean, you know, we've, we have, um, you know, produced uh, these superhuman strike throwing machines that are that are, you know, seem to be an endless parade of guys throwing you know ninety seven ninety eight out of the bullpen where that was a rarity when when you and I started watching baseball, um, 
not to date ourselves too much, but but uh, um, you know it, it, they've. I think we've kind of broken baseball with the you know the <laughs> the, the never ending parade of relievers and and uh, uh, you know considerations about twice you know third time through the order uh, and stuff like that. And there need to be. Um, you know, we need to take care to, to try to restore that balance. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm sure you talk about this a lot with every guest of yours that, <laughs> that comes on or m- many of the guests that come on here as we, uh, as you, as you cycle through, but it's, you know, we are in, it's an opportunity to, to, uh, uh, to restore some balance that, that I think, you know, needs to be taken, but needs to be done with caution and, and, uh, um, you know, I don't think we're assured that the best outcome is, is right around the corner. Our next email comes from Brad, and Brad says, uh, and this goes back to something we were talking about uh, earlier, if a player such as Bauer knows or has an idea, there will be negative news coming out about them. Does the player inform the team ahead of time? If so, is it the player that tells the team, their agent, or someone else? Who do they tell, and would it be someone in the front office? Uh, complex question. I don't know the specifics of the story with Bauer. Um, I do know on things that are uh, way less serious um, often, but not always, uh, but often the team will get a heads up from the agent and not the player um, for things like drunk driving um, and things like that. I think this Bauer thing's its own story, and I don't know if we've seen something this bad before. And, and, and I also just think you have the, um, the aspect of it being Trevor Bauer who I think is, I, I'm kind of surprised we are where we are right now in the sense that I thought we'd already have him being somewhat combative about the the administrative leaves and, and maybe it will, we'll get it again in 14 days. I don't know. Um, he has hired some high profile lawyers uh, in this situation and, and I don't know where this is going to go. But in general, for like for smaller things, teams generally get a head up and it's always the GM and it's almost always from the agent. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get surprised. Um, cause you know, players, a lot of players, and then this goes back to what we were talking about before about the vaccinations. A lot of players do see themselves as, um, either immortal or above it. And, and, and the, the rules of the, of, of the world don't apply to them because of who they are and what they can do. And cause they've never applied to them in the past or they've plenty of times have not already have not applied to them. They think it doesn't apply to them at all. And it's a, it's an ugly thing that can lead to these sorts of things. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really have much to add. I think I, I do. I do occasionally uh, get to uh, um, you know when I when I find out about stuff because because you know because my wife edits uh, the the Athletics National. Oh, that's right. It's, yeah, it's it's usually you know it, it's it, it's generally not coming from the player himself. What may, maybe maybe there's an agent involved. Um, but it's usually, you know, it's dogged reporting is what brings this stuff up uh, as mm-hmm. much as any. And certainly we've seen it with, with you know, on the on the uh, domestic violence uh, beat, which, which you know, the, the um, unfortunately they've kept uh, uh, the athletics writers very busy. Um, uh, Katie Strang and, and, and Britt Giroli, uh, you know, who've just done, you know, just incredible. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, in, in, in-depth reporting and, and uh um, you know, in ways that I think we're seeing, you know, the consequences of this stuff uh, become, you know, more far-reaching than uh, than they might have been without without this this you know this quality of reporting. But um, you know, I think that's bringing it to light as much as anything else uh, in the game. Um, our last email comes from somebody, but I my computer just crashed out. 
Nathan in Australia. There we go. Nathan in Australia. Here you go. My screen's back. Wow, that was scary. Uh, Nathan says, can you explain the process of a, a team would go through to end up sending a couple of lower level prospects from the United States to Australia for four months? Were you involved in any decisions? I'm fairly certain the Astros sent a couple guys to Adelaide. Why would a team send them so far when there are likely several other options much closer to home? Any insight would be awesome. There's two pieces here. The worst one is you say there are several other options much closer to home, and that's just not the case. You know, when you think about winter ball closer to home, uh, as far as North America, where Jay and I reside, um, they don't have those options because you're talking about these lower level kits. The Arizona Fall League's generally for double um, A, triple A guys and, and like super advanced high A prospects. And then all the, the Latin winter leagues, Latin winter leagues are not developmental leagues. Latin winter leagues are there to win and make money. And they put good players on the field and they don't spend a whole lot of time with low A kids either. Um, and so there's nowhere to go for them. And so Australia is actually a really good opportunity. But the other thing to think about is just that um, the Astros don't send players there as much as they let players go there. Um, you know, for the most part, when a player with any team decides to go to Australia for Winter League, that's was put together by the player's agent um, who got them the gig. And, and that goes for almost all of Winter Ball, too, except for the Arizona Fall League, which is run by Major League Baseball. But um, players ask teams for approval. Can I go play in the Dominican? Can I go play in Puerto Rico? Can I go play in Australia? Um, and in generally, it's always allowed because it's, A, you're playing baseball, and it lets the, you know, the kids make money because they're not making a hell of a lot of money in the minors. I don't, I don't know what Australia pays. I don't think it's great, but I do, the, do know they cover room and board. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of thing. And, and like, the Dominican can pay well. Um, you know, baseball, Winter League Dominican, Dominican Winter League baseball is obviously huge down there. And, you know, a good player can go down there and make, you know, $15,000 a month um, during their, during their time there. And so, you know, if you can, if you're an agent, you're actually kind of angling and trying to get your kid on a, on a, on a Dominican team because they can, you know, play baseball and make some money. Um, Teams do get involved, uh, not so much with the position players, but, but definitely with the pitchers. Um, Obviously because of workload and, and arm wear and tear. And it depends on what they did the year before. And at times you'll let them go for a month. At times they can go and like, you know, he can go, but once he gets over 30 innings, he's done. Um, and maybe an agreement he'll, th- you know, he's a, he won't throw more than 60 pitches in a game and things like that. Um, but most winter league, other than the Arizona Fall League, all the winter league stuff from, you know, the ones you know about and even some of the smaller stuff like Nicaragua has a league. Um, it's, it's mostly agents and players working out deals and then coming to teams for permission who generally give them. Um, uh, as long as there's not any sort of restrictions as far as pitcher workload or, you know, sometimes like you don't want the kid coming back too quick from like a knee surgery or something. But for the most part, like winter league assignments are not done by teams. They're just giving permission and the agent worked it out. Um, that's it for emails. If you have emails, send them to us. Chinmusicfangraphs.com. We, we read them all and we answer some of them. Um, Jay, I want to catch up with you. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit with Josh, the graffiti guy about the hall of fame and jaws and all that stuff. And, and I know you're very involved in the hall of fame. And I think since the last time we had you on the show, a, a few things have changed with, um, us kind of, I'm going to knock on wood coming out of the pandemic here. Um, we're going to have a hall of fame ceremony this year. Yeah, we are. We are, um, as of, as of June, uh, or as of February, to go back, they, the, the hall announced that uh, they were not going to have an in-person 
uh, induction ceremony. They were going to have a made-for-television event in uh, the, the planned weekend uh, of July 24th and 25th, I think it was. Um, and with, with conditions improving, they have decided that while they will keep the awards uh, celebration and presentation in place, that's for the, the Frick Award winners and the uh, what's now called the Baseball Writers Association of America Career Excellence Award. It was formerly the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, uh, but uh, Spink, they've taken Spink's name off of it due to uh, the research that's been done into his... Uh, um, uh, not a great dude. Yeah, not a great dude. Basically, you know, he was 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 anti-integration, and, and I think quite rightfully they've retired that that that, uh, uh, that name. But anyway, that those and the Buck O'Neill Award uh, uh, recipients for the last two years will be honored on July 24th, some of them posthumously, um, but there will be an in-person um, uh, induction ceremony. They have chosen uh, to do it in September. Uh, it is, I believe, uh, September 8th. It's normally during the summer sometimes. Yeah, right? it's it's usually late July. Uh, okay. there, there was a time a few years ago where it was like July 30th or something like that, the day before the deadline and man that was a freaking nightmare for me um because <laughs> the deadline day is, is is our busiest day of the year um but uh yeah it's 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 going to be a, it's a midweek thing and it happens to fall on the second day of rosh hashanah so there's 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 some, there's a bit of grousing about that um it was originally going to be a ticketed event uh with separate separate seating for uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, but now uh, that restriction has been dropped because the uh, all the other major restrictions uh, for outdoor gatherings, you know, in uh, in temp- pandemic times, have been dropped in the state of New York. Um, so there will, yeah, the, there's going to be a ceremony. It's going to be. Um, it's going to be just uh, like all the other ones have been in the past. There's, there's no. Yeah, kind of I, I mean, I, I think it's not going to be quite the same because. Um, a, it's a it's a midweek thing. You're not you're not going to get as many people you know traveling for that as you would for a weekend event, uh, particularly with no uh, additional programming on on the day before. It's not going to be like the f- quite. I'm not anticipating it turning into quite the festival atmosphere uh, that that uh, inductions induction weekend is in Cooperstown. Um, since the publication of my book in 2017, the Cooperstown Casebook, uh, I have gone up there to to uh, sell my book on the on Main Street on Saturday for two hours two hour blocks at a time, um, and uh, um, you know there's all kinds of you know shops you know shops that, that that offer baseball stuff and and it's just you know Nirvana if you're like in it to to buy memorabilia and 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 and, and stuff like that and I don't think that there won't be that kind of scene up there. Uh, this time there, I'm sure day of there'll be something, but like, I'm not, I'm not going to go try to try to sell books up there. Right. Um, you know, and I'm, instead of, uh, bringing my family up and, and, and trying to, you know, find accommodations for all of us, which at one point I actually did have, but then the, then the, uh, venue, uh, had the nerve to, to, to wipe out the reservations. Oh, goody. Um, yeah, that was a real shit show. Um, but, um, I won't dignify the uh, particular <laughs> venue on the air, but uh, both they and the uh, booking service uh, can can eat my shorts. Um, but instead, I'll be uh, instead I will be crashing on a friend's couch, uh, ideally uh, up there, uh, and uh, in and out. Uh, um, you know, just a, a, cu- a couple nights up there. 
Uh, and and, and, and I, this might be I'm, this is ignorant on my head. They're, they're, they're inducting two classes here. Yeah, they're uh, the class of 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 2020 uh, and the class of 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 2021. Um, sorry, no, sorry, it's it's there it was nobody that got in this year. Right, so it's it's all oh, right, 2020. Right, right. for the for the for the for the Hall of Famers. It's all 2020, which means it's Derek Jeter, <laughs> Ted Simmons. Larry Walker and the late Marvin Miller. It's the awards are 2020 and 2021. They gave both. Right. But they nobody got in on the BBWA ballot in 2021. And the era committee votes uh, for both years were postponed for a year. Um, so we didn't produce any. Uh, they didn't produce any honorees uh, in, in on that track. And is there anything new going on Hall of Fame wise? Yeah, I think. Well, you know, since um, with with the with with the era committee just getting pushed back, um, the fact that uh, the major that Major League Baseball made this announcement regarding the Negro Leagues, uh, recognizing the Negro Leagues as Major League, um, I think there's there ha- they have to take a probably a uh, uh, a different approach when it comes to building the early baseball ballot, which is uh, mm-hmm. uh, players up up until 1950, uh, who you know, players and other figures who had their greatest impact. Uh, up up until 1950, um, the the door for the Negro Leagues uh, related candidates has essentially been closed uh, ever since the special committee uh, elected 17 of them uh, back in 2006. Um, they were not considered for what was uh, really backwardsly called the pre-integration ballot um, uh, as part of the the old uh, three era committee cycle. Uh, which was which was in effect until a few years ago, uh, and eventually uh, there was enough outcry built up about that, and I, I credit Joe Pisnanski uh, for for leading the charge of just just ha- what a horrible euphemism that was. Yeah. Um, that that it basically you know I I had asked I, you know I asked about I asked about it at one uh, when when there was a shutout in in. Uh, uh, 2013 uh, for the 2000. Uh, I think it was the 2014 ballot, um, and got a yeah, got a yeah. The, the, you know, we've we've closed the books on those, which is not an acceptable answer. Um, now I think it's incumbent upon uh, the historical overview committee to include some Negro leagues uh, related candidates. Uh, I think it's it's still, you know, we're talking deep cuts here. There are there are people who are. Um, you know that who feel that that there are there are candidates that that should get considered. Mm-hmm. Um, the time periods that have been classified as major league don't necessarily match up with painting their careers in the strongest light. Um, but there are you know there are um, uh, uh, owners as well. Uh, Gus Greenlee is a name that came up uh, in the uh, um, the the when Baseball Reference did its uh, uh, launch of its. Um, uh, new stats suite uh, in relation to the Negro Leagues uh, being being uh, considered major leagues. He was a name. Uh, I'm thinking. Um, I want to say Rap Dixon was another name uh, mm. as a as a player. There's a few. Um, they're they're not necessarily the ones that that uh, the casual fan uh, would know. And I have to admit, I'm still I'm still kind of learning my way through through some of these guys. Um, Making my way through the through the through the through the data of what's on Baseball Reference, and also kind of you know uh, starting to do a little bit of research into some of the other um, you know the overlooked candidates there to 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 think about who who could be 
uh, a, a plausible candidate in the, in that regard. And then, you know, because I think the the that era is 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 very picked over from from a standpoint of the ALNL and uh, you know right. um, pre you know, and, and 19th century uh, candidates. There's not there hasn't been a lot. You know, in 2013 they elected Deacon White. Um, the uh, there's a lot of rehashed guys from the from the 30s that that you know I mean with an era that's already overrepresented in the hall, um, so we could certainly stand to see some of these uh, uh, you know some of these key black uh, uh, players and managers and and and, and other figures uh, uh, become candidates there and I think you know when you when you consider the um, uh, the other ballot which is the golden days ballot I think. Um, Minnie Minoso, now that um, a, you know a small but significant chunk of his career is considered major leagues uh, for the time oh, that he was right, right, a right. star in the Negro Leagues, um, that can only enhance his case. Unfortunately, it's posthumous um, because uh, he has come close but not gotten in. Um, but I think, you know, among other things, it pushes him past the 2000 hit threshold, which has been kind of a bright line test for Hall of Fame voters. Uh, with regards to the integration era, um, or sorry, the expansion era, the post-1960 expansion era. Um, so this could help many. Uh, Dick Allen, who died a year ago, the day after uh, they would have held the voting. I think there's obviously uh, an increased amount of sentiment. Again, it sucks that it's going to be posthumous. It's the Ron Santo uh, mess all over again. But there's, I think there's a lot of pressure on that on, on that particular committee to... Uh, you know, to 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 you know clear this to clear this to do the overdue you know elect these guys even if it's overdue. Um, the problem is that ballot is just clogged. You've got factions that support um, you know Gil Hodges, who's probably the the the, the most close but no cigar uh, candidate in in, in 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 Hall of Fame history. Um, you've uh, guys like Maury Wills and Jim Cott are on that ballot and they've received uh, substantial support in the past. Also Tony Oliva. Um, so you've got like half a dozen guys who are going to draw support. And it's just, you know, if they can't, if, if, if they, if, if it's spread too thin, it becomes a mathematical impossibility. So mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping that they think about the, 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 just how, just how bad the outcome of, of these guys dying before they get their due is, and instead of limiting the ballots to four votes, um, if they just make it kind of an up or down, you know, vote for as many as, as you want here, or maybe just loosen like this vote for six and 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 whatever. I hope I hope they do something about that. I don't have any evidence that they will, um, but uh, I remain optimistic. I also I'm 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 I'm. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm just you know I, I'm look I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what comes out of it and and, and hopefully we get uh, um, you know some some uh, uh, some overdue recognition finally for these guys. Cool. Uh, we do have some breaking news. It's Thursday, July fifteenth. It's three thirteen p.m. CT, and the New York Yankees are not taking batting practice while working through COVID protocols. Oh, geez. Um, I saw. You. That's 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 not great. Um, and they um, are over the threshold. I know that they are one of the teams over eighty five percent. Yeah, but um, they also had they had that breakthrough. Uh, they did that 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 breakthrough thing, which you know Phil Nevin was in serious uh, you know, seriously uh, rough shape there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, you're, it's, it's you know it's good that they're as vaccinated as they are. 
and hope everything's okay. Uh, I know that the Mets uh, were in the news because of uh, a report that they're nowhere, you know, they're getting nowhere on trying to get themselves over the threshold. And, and uh, um, boy, you know, there's, there's seven teams that haven't hit that threshold. And, and I was going to ask if you knew how many, I knew it was somewhere around 10. Yeah. It's seven. it's seven. And I know that the Mets and the Philly, the Phillies Cubs and, and the Cubs and the Red Sox are four of them. I'm not sure who the other three are offhand. Um, but, you know, those are contending teams. Yeah, Cubs no longer really. I mean, after that 11-game losing streak. But, yeah. Uh, and, and I think we could, we could you know, the Phillies are, are, are you know, barely there. Um, but he, you could easily see a playoff spot, you know, hinging on availability of, of, of a couple guys. You get an outbreak and, you know, you lose you lose somebody for a, you know, for a key series. Um you know, especially against a division opponent, that could that could be a difference maker there. And I'm going to have zero zero sympathy for any team. Uh, yeah, for, whom, for sure. For whom that's the case. This is you know, this is this is ridiculous. Um, if you can't see that that despite your reservations, there's a competitive advantage to be had here, and you're competitive beings by nature. I I, I don't know. It's it's just this is just one of the more stupid aspects of this of this whole scenario and there's a lot of them um it's time for a moment of culture jay all right i'm going to talk about i think you should leave but i'm going to talk about why it makes me sad okay so i think you should leave is on netflix it is uh done by tim robinson it is a sketch comedy show that is absolutely hilarious um and it's, it's highly absurdist comedy almost a modern monty python vibe to it just completely absurd and i think it's really funny and really clever and really good and every time i watch it though i am reminded that tim robinson who's the the main guy behind this amazingly funny show was a cast member and then writer on saturday night live for a few years and it just makes me and all i can think of is about, about i bet that 80 percent of these sketches or something tangential to these sketches was once pushed at saturday night live and they said no Huh. Because, because they don't know anything that's funny anymore. And I, I, I get the sense that, like, this is, like, he, they said, hey, do a show. And he did whatever he wanted. And he made something that is, I don't know, 7,000 times funnier than Saturday Night Live is. Right. And, and I get the feeling that I I, I, I could, this could be totally, this is just a feeling. That, like, he wanted to do stuff like this Saturday Night Live. And they said, that's not really what we do. We're too busy doing bad celebrity impressions and acting like that's a sketch. Um, <laughs> and... I, for that show to go so far down, and maybe it's, I don't know, maybe this is Grumpy Old Man. Maybe it, it wasn't really that much funnier. But thinking about things that I laughed at in that show in the 90s and things like that, and thinking about what it is now, and thinking that they had, the, they had it. They had the chance to be good and to be funny, and they threw this guy away, and now he's doing funny stuff because he's allowed to do whatever the hell he wants. That's a, you know, it's funny. I, it's funny that you brought this up. I um, Emma and I just started watching this show maybe like a week or two ago we got to, we watched two episodes last night i think we're two two thirds of the way through the uh uh the first season we saw everybody talking about the the new season which just dropped on, on uh earlier this month uh, uh on twitter and figured uh yeah okay we could use uh, uh we could use a short uh, short comedy uh in our in our rotation of uh pre uh, post baseball pre bedtime uh yeah uh, uh viewing and uh, it's you know it's it, it for us, it's been kind of, I guess, these, at least for these first four episodes, it's been kind of hit or miss. There are, like, side-splitting 
sketches and then there are ones that are just puzzling. It's like, well, I know that was supposed to be funny. Maybe I didn't quite get it. Um, or maybe it just, it was too creepy, absurd to, 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 for me to laugh. Like, I don't know, maybe like, maybe it's one of those things I'd probably, I might laugh more by myself than, than, uh, uh, while watching it with someone else. Cause I'm self-conscious. I don't know. Um, but there were definitely some funny moments and I'm, I'm, I'm eager to, to see what everybody, you know, everybody is as so, is so excited about, uh, with this new season because it's, you know, I'm. As an old man, I'm 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 used to not being in on whatever's hip, and that's fine. But yes, um, you know it's it's this this does this does seem a little bit more accessible than than some of the things that I just know I don't care about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what 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 else? Is in, what's in your rotation here? That, that, so, that. Um, well, let's see the um, the one I was going to bring up for uh, um, for my moment of culture is one we just added. Uh, which is the uh, the well, uh, Wellington Paranormal? Mm. Um, we watched the first episode of this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, we just watched the first episode last night, um, and uh, it um, uh, it was it was good. It wasn't it wasn't quite as uh, as uh, side splitting as as, yeah. um, as uh, um, what we do in the shadows. And I have to admit that I don't really remember these two characters very well from the original movie, which I saw uh, long before the show uh, launched. Um, there's no, there, uh, there's no, um, Matthew Barry, nobody's on the, on the, on the level of, 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 uh, of, of Matthew Barry in, in this, but it was, it was good. I will keep watching. We need, like I said, we need some comedies. We've got some dark shows in our, um, in, in our, uh, rotation. I, I think, I, I think I mentioned Peaky Blinders the last time I was on. You did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we're still, we're, I think we're, we're about to watch the, uh, season four finale there and that's been that's a really good show but it's also kind of repetitive i mean these you know mm. these guys keep making the same mistakes and <laughs> uh, you know and it's just and, and it's 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 you know there's a lot of blood and a lot of gore and a lot of violence and and whatever um what else is in our rotation now we've been watching we're re-watching mad men um i think the the early seasons we didn't get to watch together gotcha um uh and uh um, you know, it's it's one there. It's you know, there's there are some problematic aspects to it, but uh, um, but it's 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 not having one that centers around violence is 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 good for us. Um, Our new we... late night thing, like before you go to bed, is we open up YouTube on the television and huh. we watch videos from um, mostly Asia of street food vendors. <laughs> Oh wow! Okay, it's just people making street street food in like uh, in, what do we have? Taiwan, Singapore, Japan, uh-huh. uh, and it's it's great. It's exceptionally entertaining, and it makes, makes me very hungry. And then we go to bed. Nice, yeah. That's, our, that's our that's our let's calm down and chill out and get ready right, to sleep. Right. We had Top Chef in our rotation. Emma and I do a kind of a, a Top Chef fantasy contest. Uh, oh, nice! Just, just the two of us, where we have we we do a we draft four contestants. I think usually it's like. Um, I think this year we did it uh, ap- after the quick fire of the second show. Um, so you get a little bit of a feel for some of these personalities and talents or whatever. And then you get points, you know, for, for winning, uh, you know, winning the, the, the various contests. And then for, for make, at least making it to judges table for the, um, for the main, uh, for the main contest. And mm-hmm. um, I, I did have, I did have the winner uh, on my team this time, but uh uh, I think Emma Emma beat me on points overall, um, uh, and uh, there, there was unfortunately a uh, a a, a uh, 
um, a post uh, post victory uh, controversy, and I don't know if uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but uh, uh, the winner has some negative stuff in his recent past. And oh, uh, winner became problem. Winner got did he get milkshake duct? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't seem quite as bad as 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 it could have been. There's there was another winner a few years ago um, who like had some really bad stuff. Um, I think it was the Top Chef Austin winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, had some really bad stuff, like you know, sexual violence and drugs uh, in, in, involved. Oh boy. This is this is more like questionable workplace practices and oh, and, okay. you know, and, a, and a relationship. That really, in restaurants? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's the kind of shit that goes on in restaurants all the time, and 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 unfortunately, um, this guy, you know, was was, was no exception. Um, but yeah, I love I, you know I love to watch those shows. I, I miss I, I've been thinking a lot about Anthony Bourdain lately, and and uh, um, so I'm trying to steel myself as to whether you know whether I'm ready to watch that what that new documentary about him. Um, I watched the trailer and, and and almost couldn't make it through it. I was I got kind of choked up, but uh, um, you know he was he was he was an important figure in my in my own transition to to writing it was right around the same time that that you know kitchen confidential came out that i started that i started writing about baseball so i could definitely relate to to that kind of uh late you know late career or mid-career midlife uh decision to start writing about stuff so um but uh we've watched uh uh, uh padma Lux, uh uh What's her name? Of her show, they, the 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 Top Chef woman, uh, Padma. Her she's got a show. Um, I'm blanking on it, but we've been watching that one uh, as well. Um, let me Google this. Please stand okay. by. Why Jay Googles the television yes. show we're speaking of? Yes. Uh, what's it's on Amazon show? or something? Isn't it? It's it's on who it's 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 on it's Hulu. on Hulu. Okay. Um, Taste the nation. Taste the nation, and it's it's kind of a, a very you know it's in that it's it's in that Bourdain um, niche of you know it's talking about what people eat and 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 where the food comes from culturally and in doing so it's making a political statement um, subtly you know it's 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 you know, a lot of it ends up being you know discussion about immigration and and, and mm-hmm. the politics that that go on there and you know it's kind of slipping it into your food. Uh, uh, in a way that 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 I think uh, you know Anthony Bourdain got especially good at once you know in his yeah. in his CNN series, um, you know so um, she is uh, a, a a very good uh, heir to that legacy. Well, Jay, I think we're done here. Yeah, I want to All thank right. everyone for listening. If you want draft content, you'll get that about twenty four hours from now, as Eric and I talk incessantly about what happened Sunday, <laughs> Monday, and Tuesday. Um, thanks to Josh, the graffiti guy, for joining us. Jay, thank you for coming on to co-host again. Man, it's, all, it's, it's always fun doing these. It's, it, it, it feels, it's, it's the least work-like thing I do for work. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>